This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Weekend, the beginning of the end of the work week for many of us. And we will begin this program as we do each and every final edition of our week together with The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. That's right. It is your opportunity to answer questions, to ask questions of me on any subject. The two things that I'm going to ask you, though, is if you have questions about the Trump indictment, please hold those for one hour because we're going to do a full hour on this next week. It's certainly big news whenever a sitting or whenever a former president is indicted, uh, because we all know all the times throughout American history that that has happened. So we're going to devote the full second hour of the program to this. I have a couple of great lawyers that are going to join us to uh, talk about what uh, they think this indictment means legally And then I'll give you my analysis for what it means politically as well. So if you have questions on any subject uh, other than that, call in at 800-848-9222. The other thing that I would ask you is if you've gotten a question asked before on this program, I would say maybe wait 15 minutes and give people that have never been on the program before a chance to get their questions in, Uh, because that's one of the few complaints I get about this segment is that it tends to be a lot of the same people calling in again and again. So we're going to reward new people first. Uh, So we have three open lines now. If you want to call in, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. And whoever comes up with the most interesting, the most creative, the best question in the eyes of uh, Alex Barnard and Matt Blaze. We have no Kenneth today. He's still recovering from the Yankees' victory over the San Francisco Giants this afternoon. Congratulations to the Yankee fans and to the Met fans, by the way. In their judgment, whoever uh, comes up with the best question will get a prize. If there's a tie, if they're evenly divided, then we will ask Broadway Bill Lee uh, to step in as a tie breaker. Let me say hello to Barbara in Bergen County. What's your question, Barbara? Hi, Frank. Hi. Um, I enjoy the variety of the bumper music you play at the beginning of every segment. Now, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> On a musical note, um, I believe that this is a lighthearted question that others can use in conversation, which is something that you say you wonderful, prefer, wonderful, right? love it. Yes. Okay. Here's the question: Which song would you sing at karaoke, or wait, or would the question be more accurate if I asked? Which song would you sing if you were forced to sing a song at karaoke? 
Uh, well, I have three songs in my karaoke repertoire, right? And I, I will be, I will be singing all, all of them in about seven days, okay? Because I have to be nice and nicely soused in order to, uh, <laughs> in order to sing. And I haven't drank in uh, in thirty four days, so I will be, I will be making up for lost time with a Bombay Sapphire Martini a week from today, and uh, or or a couple. And the three songs, and I have a, a few others, but the three songs. Songs that are Good. primarily in my karaoke repertoire are Hey Jealous Lover, which was originally a Sinatra song, mm-hmm. um, Shut Up a You Face by that great artist uh, Joe Dolce, who I was thrilled to have as a guest on this show. And uh, the third is from the musical The Producers, uh, The King of Old Broadway. And those are the three songs that I can kind of fake my way through. Excellent. So you're not you wouldn't be forced. You're doing it willingly. Well, not forced, but it's a tougher thing for me to do stone cold sober. That's for sure. Okay, so after Lent, you can do it. Thank exactly, you very exactly. much. Thank you, Barbara. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Joe is on Long Island. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How are you? Quick question. Yes. Uh, if your wife was to change her uh, political direction in the middle of your marriage, uh, and go against everything you believe in, how would you handle it? Well, look, when you say go against everything I believe in, if um, she votes for a candidate that I don't vote for, I mean, I don't care about that. You know, it's, um, you know, we um, we vote. She really sometimes doesn't even tell me who she votes for. But uh, she a lot of times we don't vote for the same candidates now. But I th- when you say everything I believe in, if she started, um, I don't know, worshiping the goddess and uh, refused to have the grass mowed because she didn't want to harm blades of grass. I could see that being a problem. But if we're talking about a difference of opinion on things like, uh, I don't know, gun control or or, uh, lower marginal tax rates or, um, you know, Trump versus Biden, I I couldn't care less about that. Honestly, um, my wife and I, uh, I really I mean, we we will talk about politics as it comes up. But uh, even while we were courting, when I was much more active in politics, I um, we didn't really discuss politics much because I was so involved in political activities when we were not together that I kind of viewed my time with her as a little bit of uh, a break from political discussion and uh, and and all sorts of things. So we'll watch a movie. We'll uh, you know we'll we'll you know go uh, go to the park together, go for a walk, we'll play with our son. We have a relationship that is much deeper than any sort of political agreement or disagreement. I, I think we. Dis- disagree probably on many political issues now, but we really don't talk about politics too often, so I really couldn't tell you the full scope of our our disagreement. But if it's something major, like she decides to become, uh, you know, starts because she decides she wants to become a witch. Okay, that's something major. I'd like to think I could deal with that. But if it's just a political disagreement, I don't think it would matter one iota to to any of us. makes no sense. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, honey. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Carol is in Brooklyn. Hello, Carol. Hi. Good morning. Morning. I wanted to ask if you had the power to bring back one of our founding fathers to straighten out the mess that this country is in, which founding father would you bring back? Oh, this is a great question. <laughs> I am tempted 
by so many because there are certain things um, that make me want to bring back John Adams. There are certain things that make me want to bring back Thomas Paine, who I know wasn't technically, you know, a a founding father, but I consider him one because of his work with common sense. There are things that make Mm -hmm. me want to bring back Thomas Jefferson. But if I uh, I, certainly Ben Franklin, I think would have a lot to add. Uh, James Madison, I think, would straighten out a lot of the problems with uh, the wayward adherence to the Constitution. But if I had to pick one and only one, it would be uh, George Washington, and for that's it's for two reasons. One, the two things that he emphasized in his farewell address and was very steadfast in his belief throughout his presidency were things that I believe are the two most critical areas in America today, which is no political parties and uh, stay out of the affairs of foreign countries. And we have completely ignored both of those pieces of advice. And I think that if Washington were to come back now, not only would he have the credibility of being a five-star general, but he'd have the credibility of being the father of our country, the guy that helped win us the uh, Revolutionary War, the guy that was the president of the Constitutional Convention, the guy that established the precedent for every president that came after him, including the two-term president, in so many different respects. So no one listens to me when I say we should um, have a less partisan political system or stay out of the affairs of Ukraine or Iraq or uh, or or uh, Syria, maybe they would maybe just listen to George Washington. I'm hoping that if uh, Biden is em- emphasizing this and Mitch McConnell's emphasizing that, that maybe people will consider a Washingtonian approach. But it's a great question, Carol. If I have to pick one, I'm picking George Washington because I think he has the credibility with the American people that they would actually listen to him on the issues that they've been ignoring me on. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello there, Charlie. Hello, Frank. So last week you gave a speech before a Republican committee in Union County, New Jersey. Is that correct? That is correct. You did. So while you were in Union County, New Jersey, in, in Rawway, more specifically, did you have a chance to stop by my place of former employment, that that being East Jersey State Prison? <laughs> no, I didn't. I uh, I, get, I I spent some time with the uh, with the with the Rawway Republicans, and uh, and I left. That was it. That was the totality of my uh, my time in Rawway, uh, Charlie. But uh, no, I didn't. I missed that. Two open lines. If you have a question for uh, Ask Frank, anything eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. So the first question is, what do you think was the smartest thing you've ever said in your life or the smartest comment you've ever made? The second one is you had a conversation last week with Brian Kilmaid about him not having you on your program. And he said the problem is you're here, which I think is actually a little bit of a discrimination kind of thing. Would you cut your hair off so that he should be willing to have you on his program? Uh, first of all, I think Brian was joking. Um, number, number one, uh, I mean, I I usually get a pretty short haircut once a month anyway because it grows so quickly. But no, I don't think I would do it just for the sake of getting on Brian's program. I mean, nothing against uh, Brian's program, and I would probably go on uh, if invited. But I really, my plate is pretty full to begin with, and I really don't need necessarily need to add anything to it. I mean, I'm doing 
four hours a day on the radio, doing a podcast on top of that, uh, trying to squeeze in some sleep, driving to and from work, trying to be at least a somewhat accessible husband, trying to watch only two TV shows a week at the moment, Ted Lasso and Picard, and uh, maybe squeeze in a little bit of time for a, a cigar now and then. So I'm really not exactly craving to be on TV. Uh, I'm a radio guy. It kills me. You know, I used to do a lot more TV. I used to think it would be good for my expo- good for exposure for what I was doing and things like that. And I used to actually go and solicit TV opportunities. And I really don't anymore because I would end up preparing for a long time for a very complicated issue. Now, on the radio, you can take 10, 12, 15 minutes to explain a complicated issue. On television, if you're lucky, you get 90 seconds for not only your comment, but back and forth with somebody that you're debating and a follow-up question for the moderator. It's such a shallow medium, honestly, that I don't exactly crave uh, to be a guest on anyone's TV show. The notable exception to that is Tucker Carlson. His opening monologue is very deep. You could agree with it. You could disagree with it. And I'm sure there are many people that do both. But that is not superficial. It is a very deep conversation. Now, he then still does a lot of these 90-second interviews with with guests or three-minute interviews with guests. I guess that's just what you have to do on TV these days. But it's not what I like to do. I like to actually be able to have a conversation. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Pete in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Uh what is your all-time favorite physical comedian? TV or movies? Wait, wait. What did you say? What was the last uh, bit? Your favorite uh, comedian, uh, t- physical comedian, TV or movies? Um, I'm gonna have to say. Look, I get a big kick out of Abbott and Costello. Um, I get a big kick out of the Marx Brothers. Um. I'm going to say it's one of those two. I mean, I really enjoy Martin Short, but if I have to pick a favorite physical comedy team, it's a two-way tie uh, between Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers. Oh, by the way, I realize I didn't answer David's, uh, excuse me, not David, Alex's question about what the smartest thing I've ever said or the smartest comment I've ever made. I don't think I make a lot of smart comments. I think the smartest thing that I do is surround myself with very intelligent people that I can ask very intelligent questions to. So I think the most intelligent comment that I've ever made, whether it be to a guest or to you, the listening audience, when asking you to call, is why, right? Uh, That question, why, when you're discussing anything, when you're discussing cinema, when you're discussing space, whether you're discussing aliens, whether you're discussing the Kennedy assassination, whether you're discussing the Trump indictment, that question, why, opens up uh, so many opportunities. I'm much more comfortable asking questions generally than I am answering them, except for this one hour. For this one hour of the week, I kind of put myself in a answering mode and I do my best to answer your questions. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. One open line if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hello, I'm Giuseppe. I got something special for you. Ready? Uno. 
shoot the pool at Giuseppe going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick. All the thing I gotta do. I can't get to no kicks. I always got to follow rules. Boy, it make me sick. Just to make the lousy bucks. Got to feel it like a fool. And the mama used to say all the time. Not so bad. It's a nicer place. I shut up for your face. That's my mom. I can remember a big accordion solo. How great of a song is this? I, I love this song. This song, I, I'll be honest, this might be the greatest song of all time. And it was a real thrill uh, to be able to have Joe Dolce on the uh, on the program, uh, you know, to talk about how this song came to be and the other work that he's done. He's just an incredible artist, and I love this song. And it's not overly complicated as a singer. Now, I'm not a singer, so you kind of have to fake it as a singer, which I do with with this particular song. All right, 800-848-9222. We are in the midst of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever you have questions about, now is the time to ask it. Uh, let me begin with Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Here's a good one, Frankie. You take your wife and a little man to City Field to see a Met game. Mm-hmm. Now, while you're there, lo and behold, William Shatner is there mm-hmm. with about 25 of his entourage. He sees you, and he says, hey, uh, you're the guy Frank on the radio. And you say, yeah, oh, you're my idol, Bill, you're my idol. He says, wonderful, join us. So now they're eating and eating hot dogs and drinking beer like, like drunken sailors, so consuming like you've never seen anything like it. And Shatner turns to you and says, hey, Frank, you know, uh, you're the new guy. Uh, pick up the tab for us, will you? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, if, if it's if it's a thousand dollars, I uh, I can't do that. But if 25 people, well, look, if, 20, if they if they have um, three ten dollar beers each, uh, you know, I will. go. I will. Yeah, I, I will. I would be happy to buy uh, the drinks for and food for Shatner's uh, entourage. How often do you have an opportunity like that? For me, everything I do in life, Neil, uh, whether it's picking up a tab, whether it's uh Selling something, whether it's buying something, whether it's uh, going to something, whether it's uh, doing a radio show, everything I do for life in life is about value in terms of getting the value of a good story to tell. And uh, and thank you, Neil. And that is how I actually get my through myself through a lot of tough times is uh, I will be inconvenienced, sometimes really, you know, really more than inconvenience, sometimes in a really tough way. But I think to myself, oh, boy, that's a pretty good story to tell one day. And uh, I would happily uh, buy, pick up the, uh, the tab for anything Shatner wants to buy. The amount of enjoyment that he has given me as a performer and the thrill of a lifetime that he gave in terms of having me be able to talk with, uh, about uh, Star Trek with him two nights in a row for an hour and a half each I can never repay that. So if I'm the new guy and I'm picking up the tab, absolutely so be it. Happy to do it. My dear Frank Morello. 800-848-9222. Uh, 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Sonny in Rockland County. Hello, Sonny. Hello. How you doing, Frank? I'm hanging in there, Sonny. Thanks. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay. I know you're going to know the answer to this trivia question, but it's who is titled the greatest entertainer or it might even be the world's greatest entertainer. It's a famous singer of all time. Um, I'm I'm going to guess James Brown. No, no. All right. Well, then I don't know. Do you want to tell us? Yeah, I'll tell you. And, and, and it's a favorite of yours, I heard. Al Jolson. Ah, very nice. Al Jolson. No beating Al Jolson. He is certainly a great singer, a great comedic performer. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to David in Cleveland. Hello, David. Hey, Frank. Uh, I just wanted to uh, you know, thank you, first of all, for responding to my email about Johnny Appleseed. It was very classy of you. Sure, absolutely. I try to respond to every email. Indeed, indeed. Lovely. Uh, yes, I was wondering, uh, I've often pondered this question, uh, why was the international community able to eradicate barbiturates in the 70s, and yet they've never been able to eradicate any other drug? Well, it's a good question, uh, and I don't know the answer to it. And uh, maybe the next time Andrew McKenna's on, um, I'm not sure, but I, I think it's because other drugs like opioids and fentanyl they have a uh, a medical use to them that a lot of surgeons and doctors really find valuable. So you're not going to discontinue the manufacturing of them because they're so vital to the medical profession. And once you are manufacturing something, then that can always be abused uh, by someone that's the recipient of it, and it will lead to addiction. And as far as other drugs like uh, magic mushrooms and marijuana, I think you're not able to do away with that just because anybody is essentially able to grow it. You're able to grow it pretty naturally, basically. 800-848, that's my guess, but that is a completely uninformed opinion. 800-848-9222. Bruce is in Belize. Hello, Bruce. Hey, Frank. Did you get to watch the game today? I did. I missed uh, a couple of innings because uh, Carmine was having a little bit of a temper tantrum um, in the middle of it. And uh, and then the Trump indictment came down in the midst of it, and that distracted me a bit. But, yes, I did I did watch most of it. What do you think? We got a chance with that closer, Robinson? I, I hope so. I hope so. I like what I see today. I mean, I thought Scherzer was great. Um, you know, the the whole team, I think, is really gelling well. And, uh, you know, it's basically the same uh, position players as last year, with the exception of uh, Omar Navarre as, as the uh, as the catcher, uh, who I seem to like uh, based on what I saw today. Brandon Nimmo seems as, as consistent as ever. So, I, look, I hope so. We got great starting pitching, and um, hopefully, hopefully Robinson can uh, can hold down the fort until Diaz returns. So I, I'm hopeful. We'll see. Did you hear Steve Cohen was sitting out with the Army Nation? Did you hear the owner was sitting out? No, I didn't, actually. I, I must have missed yeah, that. He was sitting out with the Seven Nation Army, whatever they call that, because they take the Seven Train. Yeah. Steve Cohen was sitting with all the fans. I love so, it. I think that's great. I think that's, I think great. that's great. All right. Thank you very much, Bruce. 800-848-9222. Uh, Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Will you buy a model railroad for Carmine when he gets old enough, and did you ever have one? 
I never had one. Well, my dad had one. He may still have it. Um, and I would kind of, I don't want to say I would play with it, but I would i would mess around with it a little bit while he was setting things up. He had a Lionel train set. I would buy him a, a train set if he if he's interested in trains. I mean, um, if he shows a strong interest in trains, I will absolutely buy him a model train set. Right now, most of his interests tend to involve ceiling fans. And uh, turning the lights on in places where the lights are not on. That was a big thing today. He, he would point at the light and go, uh, uh, and um, it demanded that the lights be turned on. But as of now, he hasn't necessarily shown an interest in, in trains. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning. Um, quick point of order. Uh, they still manufacture barbiturates, so I don't know. Oh, they where do. That, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know where that maybe. caller got that notion from. Um, but um, my question now: rock and roll has groupies, wrestling has ring rats. Is there an equivalent in the radio field? And have you or any personality you work for received any unusual items in the mail from said uh, radio rats? I'm trying to think. Um, most of my groupies, I think, are over the age of of 70, which is just fine. I wouldn't have it any other way. Have I ever received anything in the mail that's unusual? I'm sure that I have, but, uh, I, I don't think I, you know what? I get a lot of weird, um, a lot of weird letters. Like sometimes I'll get these magazines that are sometimes very old in without any context. I'll get notebooks filled with indecipherable notes that I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with. But in terms of unusual gifts, no, like someone, a lock of someone's hair or something like that. I don't think I've gotten anything like that. Um, I, not that I can recall off the top of my head. I uh, So I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for that. It's a great question, and I will work on a good answer for that. Um, but no, nothing comes to mind uh, that's spectacularly unusual. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Hey, uh, I enjoyed your interview with uh, Dr. Judy Kuriansky, uh yesterday. It's, Thank it's you. It's obvious how much you guys like each other, and, and it's obvious how much she respects the job you do behind the mic. Thank you. You know, I wanted to ask you, though, you know, she obviously turned the tables on you a little bit and started asking you a few questions. It almost sounds like you were blushing. Of course, I can't tell because I didn't see you. Were you blushing a little bit last night? I don't think so. But, um, you know, I, I mean, it's quite possible. You know, Dr. Judy has a way of making everybody uh, blush. But I, I think I'm pretty comfortable talking about about sex with her uh, because we have done it for not not had sex, but talked about sex for so many years. <laughs> But uh, I uh, so I don't think so. But it, it's possible. I don't know. She might have asked a question that might have uh, that might have uh, caused me to get a little red in the face. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure, though. Honestly, I, I don't I don't I don't remember blushing. But uh, but maybe do you remember that, Matt Blaze? You want to weigh in if uh, if I was blushing on any of the Dr. Judy comments? Yeah, we actually covered this on the oh, podcast okay. yesterday. All right, so don't tell people what you came up with then. Make I, I, yes. people listen to the podcast. Yeah, we did uh, okay. talk uh, so, somewhat about uh, it. Go to uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search Darker Side of Midnight, and you could hear uh, Alex and Matt's answer to that question. They're probably a, a bit better informed uh, than than I am. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Frank, as you know, this Tuesday 
is the runoff in Chicago, April 4th. Uh, I think that Paul Velaz, because of his uh, message of law and order, has resonated. I think he's going to win a narrow victory. Do you agree? I, I don't. I, I'm rooting for him, and if I lived in Chicago, yeah. I'd vote for him. But no, I don't think uh, I don't think Paul is going to win. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, the black vote and the uh, progressive vote is going to coalesce behind Brandon Johnson, and I think he wins uh, actually pretty handily. Again, it's not who I'd vote for, but that's uh, that's if I'm just predicting what I see happening. I hope I'm wrong, and the thing that you should take heart in is that I'm usually wrong when it comes to political prognostications. But uh, no, I don't think Paul Velas, uh has as. I don't think he's the favorite, certainly. I don't think he's going to win on Tuesday. One, two, three open lines if you have a question. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. So um, I just found out about a place called the Monroe Institute, which can teach you how to astral project using binary beats. Would you ever be interested in astral projecting? You know, I, I'm not really sure. I don't, I'm not sure what that would, would involve. What, what exactly would that involve? Uh, you put uh, headphones on, and they play two different binary beats in each ear, which tricks your brain into going into, like, a different state of consciousness. And it'll, like, actually, like, force you to astral project. Interesting. Yeah, I, um, I I don't know anything about that, quite honestly, John, but based on what you describe, I think that I would be open to it, actually, um, uh, John. But uh, I don't know. I'd want to know more about it before committing, but I, I think I would be open to it. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. One, two, three, open, li- open lines if you have a question on any subject. Make them good. Make them interesting. Could be questions about baseball. Could be questions about cocktails. Could be questions about Atlantic City. Could be questions about aliens. Could be questions about national politics, local politics. Could be questions about the radio business. Whatever you have questions about, now's the time. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Looks like a Manhattan grand jury has uh, accused President Trump of breaking the law, and we will um, assemble an all-star legal panel in uh, about 20 minutes. So if you have questions about that, call in in 20 minutes, and we will tackle them, and we'll have people well-prepared, much smarter than I am, to tackle those questions. And um, if you have questions about any other subject, 
you can call in right now at 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Dan on Long Island. Hello, Dan. Hey, Frank. I got a movie question for you. Three movies. Have you seen them, and what did you think of them? The first one was the early 70s Joe with Peter Boyle. I love Peter Boyle, but no, I, I have not seen that. That is a classic, absolute classic. You have to see it. It's at New York. A very young, topless Susan Sarandon. you got to check that oh, one out. Oh, I will. Uh, second one is Not a Single Blade of Grass, British film, late 60s, early 70s. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. I'm, I'm okay. not, I've never even heard of that one, actually. Well, you can find it on Turner Classic Movies. Get this. It's about a pandemic that originates from China. And the chaos that ensues afterwards, classic. And the third, I'm striking out here. Maybe you saw this one, Bad Ronald. Uh, yeah, I'm over three so far. What's uh, Bad Ronald Bad, about? Uh, Bad Ronald's uh, about a, a creepy guy that kills uh, one of the teenage girls in the neighborhood, and his mother hides him behind the walls in the house and dies, and the new family moves in with this creep living behind the walls. Classic. If you're interested in that one, Adam Carolla does an awesome uh, preview of that on uh, YouTube. About two minutes long. It gives you a gist of the whole thing. Well, I will check it out, Dan. Thank you. Uh, sounds like some good recommendations there. Uh, Greg is in Arizona. Hello, Greg. Hi, Frank. Uh, my, my question is about the million-dollar minute. Uh, when Thousand you put those people, no, it, it might as well be a million once that psychological warfare kicks in and the pressure becomes <laughs> incredible. Um, do you give them, it's a minute, but do you allocate the same amount of time for your questions so they have uh, the same amount of time to answer, or some nights worse than others because the questions are longer? Um, you know, it's a good question. I never really, I never really, uh, I, I never really took that into account, but what I do always do is I do a dress rehearsal with someone um, to make sure that you can get an answer into all those questions within uh, within a minute. So, so we always make sure that it's theoretically possible. Uh, it's usually my wife, sometimes it's my sister or someone else, but we it's usually it's we always make sure it's theoretically possible to answer all 10 in uh, in 60 que- in 60 seconds. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Lisa is in Brooklyn. Hello Lisa. Yes, hi. hi. How are you? Good. I just wanted to know if you want a billion dollars, there's two options. You get to stay home, retire, and stay home with your family, or you give all the money to a charity of your choice. Which would you choose? Well, uh, let me see. Billion dollars, <laughs> um, uh, billion. and I have to. I have to either. Well, can I? Can I keep? Ten... I, no, 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 no. That's no. That's right. It's either. I know it would be great if you could do either both, but you get to retire. And stay home with your family, or you have to give it all to charity. I would, I would, I would give it all to charity uh, for a couple reasons. One, I don't really see myself as the retiring type. Uh, I actually don't ever want to retire as long as I'm physically able to do this job. I'd like to do this um, for the rest of my life, in in all likelihood. Um, number two, I, I would think if I'm giving a billion dollars to charity, one, I could pick some very worthy charities that could probably use the money, and where that money would help a lot and I think I would probably get to go to some really nice charity parties some really great charity galas for all the money that I've given these groups so I would absolutely uh, give give that money to uh, to charity 800-848-9222 open lines if you have a question on any subject Tony is in Clifton New Jersey hello 
Hi, Frank. So Hi. I know um, you're, you, pref- you like um, movies that are Star Trek and all that, but if you were given the opportunity to do a one-man Broadway piece, there's been some great one-man, one-woman shows on Broadway. What would what would be what would you would you be comfortable doing that? And what would be the topic or the person that you would you know you would be for that one-man play? They're mm. phenomenal. That is such a good question. I'd want to think about that a little bit. You know, I saw Christopher Plummer in a one-man show um, where he played John Barrymore, which I thought was just uh, just terrific. So I'm, and now that Christopher Plummer is no longer with us, I might like to do um, something like that. And um, I don't know, I, I, w- I, I don't think I could do this, but I would love to do something like what Chaz Palminteri did in A Bronx Tale, where he basically plays all the characters. Um, you know, I saw Chris, I saw Patrick Stewart do a one-man show, a reading, very dramatically, of, um, of uh, A Christmas Carol. You know what I would do? Here's what I would do. I would do a one-man show of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where yeah, I play yeah. I play all the characters. And it's just me <laughs> essentially reading the book. I, I would have it memorized. But I play all the characters in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Every character is me on the stage. That's what, that's what I would do. That would be my show. Excellent, Frank. Can you give us a two-minute excerpt? <laughs> Not at the moment, because I want to try and get some other people in. But uh, I'll put that on my list of uh, of things maybe next week, if we have a slow news day next week, which seems to be in short supply these days. 800-848-9222. Uh, George is in Manhattan. Hello, George. Hi, Frank. One George. question was about the Casio uh, uh, model number that you were going to get. And this is the question I have. Did, did you want to use that Casio in your home or outside, outside of your home? Uh, and whether it matters. Because outside of your home, it would uh, not be practical because the box is too big, you know, to connect to that. Another thing about Jay Diamond, by the way, uh, what is he doing these days and why is he not on any radio station? Because I did a little research on, uh, on the Internet, you know, and uh, apparently he's not on any station because, in my view, he was one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, I, I, know? I agree. And he's still one of my favorites, George. Thank you. If I owned a radio station, I would um, empty my bank account to hire uh, Jay Diamond. You know, one talk, we're not going to do this today because we've got so much other stuff to get to. But one subject, I'm watching Ted Lasso now. And one of the things uh, in a couple of the episodes this season that they deal with is a, a soccer player that's so good that he changes the whole team. And there are certain times when you have someone that's so talented in anything, acting, uh, you know, sports or broadcasting, whatever the case may be. The, I'm sure it's true in the corporate world where you just get one player and that changes the whole dynamic. You immediately begin winning. It's almost like when the Mets got Mike Piazza or when the Yankees got uh, Babe Ruth. And Jay Diamond, to me, is that kind of a game changer. He is so talented and so good that I think he would be an incredible addition to any radio station. I've invited Jay on this program many times. He doesn't want to come on. 
Um, he, I don't think he's doing much of anything right now. Um, he spends a lot of time posting on Facebook. He's very vocal about his political opinions. The last radio that he was doing regularly is um, he was filling in for Alan Combs on Fox News, but Hannity uh, complained to the higher-ups at Fox News and got him banned from doing that. And then... Um, and then he and I filled in a couple of times about 11 years ago on one uh, one radio show on CRN Digital Talk Radio. We sort of co-hosted a couple shows together. That was fun. I don't think he wants to do talk radio. I don't want to speak for him uh, because, you know, I, I'm not as smart as he is and I can't get inside his head necessarily. But I just don't think he's happy with what talk radio is these days. And I don't think he wants to be a part of it. But that's my that's my characterization of what he said. He hasn't told me that. And I've told him that uh, he is welcome to come on the show anytime that he wants. 800-848-9222. Troy is in Babylon. Hello, Troy. Hey, Frank, what's good? Quick question, two questions, actually. um, What predictions for WrestleMania? um, Why should staff do anything about the AMC debacle? Um, What what was your second question? Why should staff get inside the AMC debacle? It's about to close the banks and everything. And get make a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. Yeah, I'm not clear on your question about the AMC debacle. I am gonna try and watch WrestleMania this weekend. I don't watch television usually until after ten PM, but I'm gonna try and turn it on. I don't know what we're gonna be doing at ten PM or what my sleep schedule is gonna be like this weekend. But uh, I'll I'll turn it on, and uh, if I can watch it a little bit on Sunday while I'm doing things, I'm not going to watch it um, avidly. And then uh, my prediction is that we're going to see a major major upset. I think you're going to see Roman Reigns lose the world or the Universal Championship, whatever they call it these days, to uh, Cody Rhodes. And um, uh, Roman Reigns has been the champion, reigning champion, for many years now. It's one of the longest championship streaks in history, which I think is great. Because there was a time not long ago when they were changing, they were changing um, uh, champions quicker than Larry King was changing wives. And to think that we have a little stability, it, in my view, it makes the world, the universal title, really mean something again. And but I do think, for that reason, a title change is even more meaningful. I think you're going to see Cody Rhodes win the title here, and I think he's going to be a great champion. I'm rooting for him. That's 800-848-9222. Frank is in Yonkers. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. How are you doing? Good. Hey, listen, how how long do you take to prepare for the typical guest? Because you're very good at it. Wow. Well, thank you. Honestly, it depends on uh, it depends on a few factors. One, it depends on how much time I have. There are times when I'd like more time to prepare, but the show starts at uh, the time that it starts, whether I'm ready or not. So I better be as ready as I ever do, I, I ever get. Uh, the other factor is um, how long I have the guest for. If it's a short interview or a long interview, that takes a long time to prepare for. But if it's a, a medium-sized interview in the 20-minute range, that I don't need to prepare as uh, as much for because it's usually pretty obvious what I need to ask that person. And um, and the other thing that it depends on is how well I know the subject. Uh, I can if there was a um, if there was an expert on about the film The Godfather. I think I could probably spend a little less time preparing than if I'm interviewing someone about nuclear fusion, which is something that I'm not as well versed in. I have to kind of 
familiarize myself enough with the subject before I can ask uh, questions about it. But it's a good question. It varies. I try to allow double the amount of time as the length of the interview. So I try to allow uh, for a 20-minute interview, which is what most of my interviews tend to be, I try to allow at least 45 minutes. Uh, Do I always get that 45 minutes? No. Uh, but I'm pleased to hear that it doesn't sound um, it doesn't sound that I'm ill prepared ever. Do we have any more breaks? No, good. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Jacob is in New Jersey. Hello, Jacob. Yeah, hi. How are you? I just wanted to know if it came down to DeSantis versus Trump, which one would you vote for? Um, I would vote for Trump. Uh, I, um, you know, again, there's a lot of things not to like about Trump, and I am hoping that there'll be a third choice in the general election that I can that doesn't want to uh, continue this war in Ukraine forever. But uh, look, Trump has a lot of faults, a lot of faults, and both not just personality wise, but policy wise. I mean, everyone acts like all the mistakes that he made in his administration. Hiring people like uh, John Bolton and General Mattis and H.R. McMaster and uh, Steve Mnuchin and appointing people like Christopher Wray and Jerome Powell uh, and Mike Pompeo. Everybody acts like like he was just this prisoner. He was this naive babe in the woods that was for some reason a slave to the bureaucracy around him. No, when you're the president, as Truman said, the buck stops with you. He should have appointed better people, and personnel is policy, and I absolutely hold him accountable for that. That being said, uh, even though DeSantis is trying to act Trump-like in terms of answering questions about Ukraine and things of that nature, uh, I I don't buy it at all, right? I don't buy it at all. I know where Trump is on trade. I know where Trump is on immigration. I know where Trump is on um, ending these never-ending wars. I think DeSantis is going to govern, if he ever were to get elected, a lot more like the person he was in Congress, which is basically like a Paul Ryan type, and a lot less like the Trump that he's pretending to be. I think DeSantis is trying to be, at the moment, Trump. He's, he's trying to be Trumpism without Trump. He's trying to be Trump without the baggage. And I don't think that's really where his beliefs are. Whereas Trump, for all his mistakes, he, he has very good instincts. How met, Once Trump made the decision to engage with Kim Jong-un and North Korea, how many hydrogen bomb tests were there? Okay. Once Biden came in, decided to make him a pariah again. How many, how are we doing with bomb testing in North Korea now? Is the world a more dangerous place or a less dangerous place? I think we know the answer to that. When Trump made the decision to engage with Vladimir Putin, how many countries did Vladimir Putin engage, uh, invade? I mean, uh, to me, Trump has very good instincts and his core beliefs on the three issues that I just mentioned align with my core beliefs. That being said, I wish there were another candidate uh, because I think Trump has been so polarizing and so divisive that I don't necessarily think it would be a good thing for the country to have four more years of that again. But if the choice is Trump or DeSantis or Trump or Biden, I'm voting for Trump every day of the week. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Rockland. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Frank. Hi. I wanted to ask you 
what and when inspired you to take on radio as a career? Uh, it's a great question. It's not one. Th- well, really, I I always was such a fan of radio from the time that I was um, from the time that I was nine or ten from three different ways in that. I had two uncles that I was very close to. One of them is still alive. I'm still very close to him. My Uncle Joe and my Uncle Carmine. And uh, my Uncle Carmine was very liberal. My Uncle Joe is very conservative. And they, um, I would always gravitate towards them at family functions. And both of them uh, were radio addicts. And my Uncle Carmine, I wanted to listen to what they would listen to so I could be as smart as them. Both are very smart men. And my Uncle Carmine would listen to all these liberal talk show hosts. And I would ask him the names of all the hosts that he would listen to and I would listen to all them and my Uncle Joe would listen to all these conservative talk show hosts and I would ask him the names of all the people he would listen to and I would listen to all them and then I also at the same time two other things happened I was such an enthusiastic baseball fan that I became hooked to listening to baseball on the radio and uh, not only was that a very magical experience for me but then listening to whomever was on after those baseball games was pretty special and then I also discovered at a relatively young age Howard Stern, and I didn't think it was capable. I was ever I was capable of laughing as much as I did uh, during the Howard Stern show. So I don't remember when I decided that maybe I could make it uh, make this a career. I want to say maybe about fifteen years old, maybe fourteen years old, right around there. But uh, I, it was really just an uh, an. A, a growth of um, my being such an enthusiastic radio fan. But as far as what's to love about radio, it's everything. To me, it is by far the best medium for discussing discussing anything, whether you're discussing politics or legal issues or entertainment. And I, it's the, by far the most entertaining and the most intimate. So uh, I can't imagine wanting to do anything else. That's 800-848-9222. Let's see here. Uh, David is in Brooklyn. Hello, David. Hello, Frank. How are you? Doing well, thanks. What's what's your question, David? Only got about a minute. Uh, My my question was, uh, do you think that uh, January 6th was actually uh, an FBI op? I don't, but I do think that there were... FBI informants that played a role in ginning up what went on at January 6th, similar to the Michigan so-called plot to kidnap Gretchen Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, And it turned out that um, some of the people that were most enthusiastic about kidnapping the governor were getting paid by the FBI to infiltrate these groups. I think it's a similar situation with some of the January 6th protests. But, no, I think these people, these morons, quite frankly, were going to storm the Capitol anyway uh, because uh, they're not so bright and they have very little respect for the rule of law. Best question, Matt Blaze, is there a consensus? Carol from Brooklyn, what founding father would you bring back? I, You know, a bunch of people texted me that they liked that question as well. In Brooklyn, call back 800-848-9222 and we will give you a prize. Now, if you have questions about this Trump indictment, we have assembled three attorneys to take your questions and to answer them as best they can. Give me a call, 800-848-9222. Until then, keep asking questions.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. waiting for for quite some time has finally arrived for the last couple of weeks there have been all these theories as we played the waiting game when will president trump be indicted well we now know the answer is yesterday a lot of people were uh, talking about uh, this indictment in the over the course of the last eight hours among them, uh, star civil liberties attorney Alan Dershowitz was on the Rita Cosby show. I, I think he was on in just eight hours. He's been on 80 shows. I've seen him on or heard him on 80 different radio shows. He was Alan Dershowitz on this Trump indictment. Well, look, when a Democratic elected politician who ran on the campaign slogan of get Trump uh, goes after the man who's going to be running against the head of his party, for president of the United States, you darn well better have the strongest case imaginable. And in 60 years of practicing and teaching criminal law, I have never seen a weaker case. I have never seen a case of greater prosecutorial abuse, certainly since McCarthyism, than this case. This is the weakest case against a man running for president against your the head of your party. It better be a strong case. And instead, it's the weakest case imaginable. Well, is Professor Dershowitz right? Is this actually the weakest case, as Alan Dershowitz said, you can imagine? Well, we have assembled three star attorneys and legal analysts to give us a little insight. I want to welcome for the hour. We're going to take your questions on the Trump case as well at 800-848-9222. At least as many questions as we can get to, uh, given that we still don't know what these charges are because it's very much a sealed indictment. I want to welcome a very good friend of mine, veteran criminal defense attorney, radio talk show host, and now a star podcaster, Matthew J. Mary. Maddie, it is great to have you back on the program. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. And a gentleman that uh, has been kind enough to lend us his uh, legal expertise from time to time as well is former New York City prosecutor, and these days he's an attorney in private practice, William Igbagwe. Uh, William, how close did I come to getting your last name right? You did good. Okay, good we'll morning, take it. Right. it is 2 a.m. <laughs> we'll take it. All right, I'm just going to call you William for the duration of the hour, okay? Sounds good. And making his other side of midnight debut, uh, very pleased to be joined by a former assistant U.S. attorney and a top-rated criminal defense attorney, David Katz. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. 
It's great to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, so it's still yesterday. It's 11 p.m., but great to be with you for the first time. Wonderful. It's great. It's great uh, for us to have you, David. Since um, since you're uh, since you're the the newest to the program, I'll begin with you. We'll give you the courtesy of uh, that we would extend any any new guest. Uh, explain to folks why this indictment is sealed at the moment. Is that something that the prosecutor requests? Is that something that the grand jury determines? Is that something that the uh, judge in the case determines? Why don't we know the charges here? Well, I think that is the norm in New York, but I'm going to defer to your other guests on that. Uh, I do a lot of federal practice, and in the federal practice, actually, this would not be sealed. Um, It would probably be returned, and then unless they were looking to find a fugitive or they wanted to keep it secret because they were going to be doing some searches, Uh, it would be unsealed. So this would be very unusual, actually, in the federal practice, which people think of as being stricter and having more sealed proceedings. So let me defer to your New York attorneys on this one. Uh, Maddie, uh, as far as you can tell, why is this a sealed indictment? I can't imagine a good reason why it needs to be sealed. Uh, And I do think that it's in the control of the prosecutor at this point. Certainly the judge who's going to be assigned to the case, if there is one assigned yet, would have no uh, no uh, interaction with this particular decision to seal the indictment. So I, I think it's it's not really rare, that rare, but it's suspicious that this indictment is sealed. And I think that they're kind of bracing themselves for the reaction to this and trying to just get ready for maybe a negative response out in the street. William, as a former state prosecutor uh, yourself in this same state that Trump is now going to be prosecuted in, do you have a uh, a take as to uh, why this is a sealed indictment and uh, how that determination gets made? Well, by nature of an indictment of a grand jury investigation, it's it's automatically private. So whatever is uh, put out there is put out there by the prosecutor. Um, this would be considered what I would call an ex-indictment, which means an individual has not been actually arrested for a crime. They're being investigated, and then an indictment is brought forward by the grand jury. So until um, something is filed, a top count or something like that, it's just naturally secret. And probably, um, again, to the other commentators, um, the prosecutor wants this as tight-lipped as possible until he has to put something out there. Uh, David, obviously, since this is is a sealed indictment, we don't know precisely what the charges are, but uh, we're guessing that it probably has something to do with the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. It, based on what's being reported, based on what's being leaked out, what is your best reading on what Trump is likely to be charged with here? Well, my best reading is that it is not the case of overvaluing assets, uh, overvaluing them for banks and insurance companies and undervaluing them for the state or federal tax authorities. That was the case that they were looking at. That's the one that I think Pomerantz was upset that they didn't bring. And so it's, it's pretty much the Stormy Daniels payment. And it's been reported by some outlets that there are 24 or 30 counts. And you can say, well, why would there be so many? But Michael Cohn says that after he paid the 130 of hush money out of his own pocket, basically, then he got reimbursed on a monthly basis. So probably each one of those reimbursements 
is a separate count. And he said that happened, let's say, 15 times or so. And then, uh, you know, one of the questions that I have, and I hope we get to it, is what the statute of limitations is. Well, that was is, my next question. Yeah. This. yeah. Right. Well, I, mean, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to dominate it. But the no. question on statute of limitations, I found really fascinating, and a lot of people haven't commented on it, and I'm kind of wondering why. Now, it may be that Michael Cohn says that he still got payoffs, or he still got materials that furthered the cover-up as of five years ago. Um, that that extended past uh, not only 2017, but went to late March 2018. If it did, they tucked themselves in under the five-year statute of limitations and just barely. And that would explain why it was go-go. They weren't going to wait till after Easter or Passover, uh, Frank, but they were going to go-go right now because they just um, tucked in under the five-year statute of limitations. If they didn't, if it's actually been, let's say, five and a half or six years since then, um, that's a really interesting topic. I'd love to kick around with your other yeah, guests uh, uh, about whether they really could extend the statute of limitations beyond five years on this idea of being continuously out of state. I don't see where Trump has been continuously well, is, out of New York. That is exactly the next uh, the next uh, subject that I wanted to tackle. William, do you have any thoughts on the how the prosecutors get around the statute of limitations? Um, and I, I heard someone, I think it was my friend Arthur Idala, who said that Cuomo during the uh, Governor Cuomo during the COVID pandemic actually paused the statute of limitations on certain crimes. Are they going to try to rely on that to try to uh, find some way to um, get around that five year statute of limitations? Or is there some other factor that's going to allow them to bring this case? Yeah, I guess the the question um, that we're running into, especially you know, how they got around the um, falsifying business records. Falsifying business records is either a misdemeanor or it's a felony, and he would be have to, they'd have to be able to prove that he was attempting to commit another crime, um, you know, in that process. So misdemeanors in New York have a two-year statute of limitation. So it seems like if these actions were sometime around uh, December of 2017, it seems to be a little bit out of out of that space. Um, so yeah, during the the COVID pandemic, Cuomo did um, did pause, I guess, for a bit um, the statute of limitations on New York cases and New York State um, uh, law affected cases. And yes, yeah, state prosecutors used that, especially when you looked at the statute of limitations for um, 30, 30 reasons for um, speedy trial. So it's possible that that could be something that's used. I'm sure that... Can I jump in? Yeah. Frank, can I jump please, in? Please, please, please. Yeah, I, I was reading up on... This is Dave Katz. I was reading up on that, and I thought that Cuomo... There's Some people think Cuomo's order only applied to civil cases, and some people say it only applied for about five months um, overall. So I just wonder what the other guest thoughts are on that. Did it only apply to civil? Did it apply for more than five months? Maddie, it was definitely criminal cases. Uh, Maddie, okay. uh, you, any thoughts you have on the, uh, on the statute of limitations issue? Yes, I do. Uh, in a practical point of view, when you look at this case and you look at the timeline of it all, this is an event that took place in 2006 when Trump's allegedly had an affair with Stormy Davis. Then in 2016, there's all this stuff about the payment being made and then the payments to Cohen. When you look at the timeline 
of this situation. There's nothing left to conclude other than this is strictly a political prosecution. Things like this don't happen in the criminal justice system uh, very often, where you have prosecutors bringing cases that are so stale. And you've got to remember, this situation, the Stormy Daniels payment situation, was investigated by the Federal Elections Commission. It was investigated by the Department of Justice. It was investigated by the Attorney General of New York State. It was investigated by Cyrus Vance. And all of those entities chose not to bring charges related to this issue. And even a few months ago, a few months ago, it looked like uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg was going to walk away from this case. And two prosecutors who were appointed as special prosecutors, right? Special prosecutors, just to prosecute former President Trump, they they were enraged that Alvin Bragg had not moved on an indictment in this case. They resigned. One of them wrote a book criticizing Bragg, and it seems to me he was about to walk away from this case, but he's getting a lot of left-wing political pressure on him. He comes from the the woke community, and I think that he he caved in to political pressure and moved forward with this indictment. It's nothing less than the weaponization of the criminal justice system into the political process. And when you mix politics with law, you're mixing horse bleep with ice cream. David, I, th- I think you heard what I think is likely to be the um, the linchpin of the Trump defense, which is this is a politically motivated uh, witch hunt. Well, what do you say to what Maddie just said? Well, you know, I've been commenting on Trump things uh, when CNN was still in Los Angeles before they moved to Atlanta. I was on Newsroom about twice a, a week, and we kicked around all these things. And um, my thing, Frank, was always not right not left, just right, not wrong. So I'm trying to be just right, not wrong on the law. Like if you went to a lawyer and you said to him, give me your opinion of the legal issues in the case. And so that's why I think that if um, they have a statute of limitations extension, which sounds like it applies to criminal cases, and if it was for five or six months, then the issue is, did the payments to Michael Cohn or did the cover-up go up until five and a half years ago. If it went up to five and a half years ago, right, you have the five years of the statute, and then you add on the six months that Cuomo added for criminal cases to the statute of limitations, and then they're tucked in. Um, You know, whether the case is political or not, obviously, like a lot of people in the country, I worry that, you know, if the shoe were on the other foot, um, or is a Democratic ex-president or Democratic ex-vice president, you know, is Biden or Harris, going to be charged after their time in office with, you know, an offense someplace that they're politically unpopular, you know, Amarillo, Texas, Montgomery, Alabama, right? You start to think of, is this what we're going to have now as a norm? Um, But, you know, um, I also think that a little bit of, you know, the goose and the gander, right? I mean, Trump is the person who ran around and said, lock him up. That was his mantra in 2016 against Hillary, lock her up, lock her up. Um, So there's certainly been a lot of, you know, he, according to Kelly, his chief of staff, he said all the time, why don't we sick the FBI on this guy? Why don't we get the IRS to investigate that person? There's those two FBI enemies of his who miraculously had this super special intensive audit 
that, in my opinion, they've never gotten to the bottom of. So, you know, I, I, I don't really have a political opinion mm-hmm. on it so much, but it seems to me it's, it's fit within the statute if it's five and a half years. And the cover-up that Michael Cohn might have done, the payments that were made to him, they're part of the conspiracy. It's not just the payment that was made to Stormy Daniel in October 2016. It's all the acts that were done in furtherance of the cover-up, right? Let, let, me, get, let me get you gentlemen to pause. Uh, we'll get William to weigh in in just a minute. And then I'm going to ask the members of our illustrious legal panel um, what role this prosecution is going to have in some criminal cases that other people consider to be stronger. The Georgia case, the documents case, January 6th. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. If you have questions about the case, you can dial in at 800-848-9222. Matthew Mary is here. David Katz is here. And William Igbakwe is here. We have it covered from every possible angle. I sure hope that that Cuomo pausation of uh, the statute of limitations uh, doesn't result in, in extending that statute because I committed a whole bunch of crimes back in 2018, and I thought I was off the hook. And to think I have to sweat, keep sweating those crimes out. That's not something I'm looking forward to doing at all. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. For the first time in history, a former president has been indicted. Uh, but this happens to be a very unique former president in that he is also currently a presidential candidate. Now, that in and of itself is not unique. We have seen presidential candidates and federal candidates for a variety of offices run for office both under indictment and after actually being convicted. Some people may remember Eugene V. Debs ran for president uh, from prison, actually, back in 1920, and so did Lyndon LaRouche back in 1992. Uh, But I am hoping that um, we will not need to test that one out. Rudy Giuliani, the uh, former president's former attorney, was on with Rita Cosby talking about the indictment a few hours ago. Well, I'm very, very sad, uh, Rita. I, I, I don't mean to overdo it, but I'm very depressed and very sad for the country. Uh, the, the statements that were made by Eric uh, are right right on target and some, some of the others. I, I don't know, you know, if most Americans are students of communism. I, I happen to have been because I grew up in a Cold War. I worked for Ronald Reagan on communist spies. This is the Communist Manifesto working itself out in real time. This is what Marx wanted for us. Uh, our criminal justice system has now uh, turned into a state-controlled criminal justice system, controlled and operating for the benefit of the privileged, the Democrat Party. Uh, they don't get prosecuted for crimes at the highest level of government involving millions and millions of dollars. And Republicans get prosecuted either for minor crimes that are exaggerated 
or crimes that are made up. And this actually even extends to framing the president of the United States. Uh, What they charged him with is just not a crime. Well, um, it may be a crime, but it certainly is somewhat untested. There is, based on what we think that the former president is likely to be charged with, it's a combination of two crimes. In New York, it's falsifying business records, which is a crime, although only a misdemeanor. And in order to get it to a felony, you have to combine it with a second crime, which they say is uh, a violation of the election law. This was described by even the uh, New York Times as a novel legal theory for any criminal case. And uh, this is not something that uh, anybody has ever been prosecuted under, to the best of my knowledge. Here to help us break down what we can expect in the next coming weeks, months, and maybe years is uh, veteran criminal defense attorney Matthew Mary, former New York City prosecutor and private practice attorney William Ibakwe, and David Katz, former assistant U.S. attorney and a top-rated criminal defense attorney in his own right. William, uh, let me begin with you. Does the fact that there's really no precedent for a prosecution like this, does that hurt Bragg's case at all? Yeah, it makes it difficult. I mean, you have a new prosecutor uh, stepping into this space and taking on a Herculean task and bringing a state criminal charge against a former president who's currently running for president. It would seem to me that because of the status of this individual, Trump, because of the newness of this prosecutor, um, he's got a high task, but it's not an, it's not impossible. But when you look at the if there's any precedent, I guess the closest you can come to is John Edwards. And the uh, it was a North Carolina uh, case. Hush money paid to a, you know, individual they had relations with and they had difficulty prosecuting that case. Um, so it, it does create some difficulty because there's no precedent. Uh, Maddie, uh, your take in terms of uh, whether this case will get thrown out by a judge potentially. It, it, it will be thrown out by any judge who wants to act like a judge. And you could bet your bottom dollar that this case is going to be veered into some political judge who is a pawn of the Democrat Party and who will be afraid to go against the Democrat Party. And the, the sad thing, which makes this a dark day in, in the law, in a dark day in American history, is that we, as experts in this field, are talking about this case as if it were a regular criminal case. It is not. This is a political case. The criminal justice system is being stretched out of shape here. This is so unusual for to to arrest somebody, to indict somebody for a crime like this so long after the facts that it's clearly political, and it's clearly a weaponization of the criminal justice system. We're in a revolution, uh, Frank. That's what we should be talking about. This is not about Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives. It's about revolutionaries against preservationists. I consider myself a preservationist. I want to preserve 
the Constitution, preserve law instead of lawlessness, preserve order instead of disorder. And this is what this situation is about. It's about creating chaos in the legal system, using the legal legal system for political purposes. And whether you like Trump or you hate him, he's got a right to run for president, and they're trying to knock him out. David, uh, even out of office, President Trump has a a big megaphone. He's got tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of followers on social media. And uh, he could call a press conference and be uh, on almost every channel in in the world. I can't imagine that any judge would want the Trump comments possibly prejudicing a jury pool. For that reason, do you think that the prosecutors are likely to seek some sort of a gag order here to stop President Trump from commenting on this case? I think that would be very foolhardy. Um, You know, I I take, you know, seriously the comments of your other guests, uh, you know, about the fact that it is an unusual case. And the John Edwards case um, in federal court never ended in a conviction. And eventually the Department of Justice had to drop that case. And the nation was really upset about Edwards's conduct because this campaign contribution violation was wrapped up in, remember, his wife having cancer, him having given this money from the campaign contribution, sure. a lot more than $130,000. Um, to basically his mistress. And then there was this whole fiasco where he said that the love child was, you know, inseminated by his campaign uh, manager. And that wasn't true. Even with all of that, uh, Edwards got a fair trial and he never got convicted of anything. So it is an uphill battle to try to convict Trump in this case, no doubt about it. And that's why a lot of people think that he was fortunate in a way to have the four investigations against him lead off with the weakest case. I think everyone would have to agree that this is the weakest. When you look at the Georgia investigation, where he actually made a phone call, which is incriminating into Georgia. And when you look at the confidential documents retention down at Mar-a-Lago and you look at the insurrection and not tamping it down. When you look at those four, this obviously, I agree with your other guest, is the weakest um, case of all of them. But I think that to try to give him restrictions, either travel restrictions or speech uh, uh, restrictions, would play right into the hands of people like your guest who say it's all political. It was all to shut up a candidate who had a good chance of winning in 2024. And so I think he'll have no travel restrictions. I think that it would be foolish to try to give him any, uh, you know, he, it, there are some things that, you know, he can't say. I mean, the thing with the bat and the DA, if he, if he wants to post a bat and the judge on his case, that obviously will not be done and that should not be tolerated. But I think in general, he can say what he wants to say, including the fact that he thinks he's being railroaded and the charges are unfair. And I think he'll be allowed to do that, Frank. I, I just don't think that this will restrict him in any way. And if I, I can say one last thing, they may be playing into his hands because, you know, as a criminal defendant, I think the reality is he can pick pretty much when he wants to go to trial. And there be a, may be a moment when he wants to go to trial. Maybe it's September, right, of next year and sort of have an October surprise, maybe be acquitted, right, maybe have a hung jury, use that to his political advantage. Uh, I don't know. But and there's a lot of things that Trump and his good lawyers, you know, smart lawyers, We'll have to figure out how he can try to turn this to his advantage, not the prosecutors. One of the things uh, David said there, William, which is the uh, general consensus among every legal analyst that I've heard, is that this is one of the weaker potential cases of all the cases that are looking at uh, at prosecuting Trump. Does bringing this case, does Bragg bringing this case 
hurt the other cases that we're talking about here, the federal documents case and the uh, the Georgia case and maybe even something related to January 6th? What's your opinion, William? Yeah, I think everyone is watching and everyone is playing coy. and Everyone's kind of pushing, bragging to the center of the bull ring, like, hey, you know, you go first. Um, I think some one of the unique points that we're dealing with here is that these are activities that Donald Trump committed before he became president. I think that one of the main issues that separates this is that we are talking about dealing with the activities of a man outside of the office, but now dealing with the man in the office, I still think that individuals, prosecutors, law enforcement um, agencies are a little bit coy about bringing an action against activities of a sitting president because it's about the office of the presidency versus Trump himself. So I'm interested to see how those cases, if they actually come forward, and potentially they want this case, the weakest case to come forward, because it could, you know, ice, you know, the the atmosphere. And and maybe these other law enforcement agencies, other uh, cases kind of just go out into the wind. I don't know, uh, Ma- but it'll it'll be difficult. Uh, Matthew Mary, a fellow that uh, I'm guessing you've been on the other side of the courtroom with from time to time, is uh, Ellie Honig, who has uh, made a, a new career for himself from being a prosecutor to being a, a legal analyst. In fact, yeah, I know at least one case that I watched you and he uh, go head to head on about uh, 12, 13 years ago. Ellie Honig, certainly no fan of Donald Trump, but he said in in his analysis of this for CNN recently, that the key reason that the feds chose not to charge Trump for this Stormy Daniels situation was because they had serious questions about the credibility of Michael Cohen. As far as you're concerned, Maddie, how big of an issue is Michael Cohen's credibility in terms of looking at this case? Michael Cohen is going to be the biggest asset that the Trump defense team has. Having him against you is like having a hundred people testifying for you. It's it's a godsend for Trump that, that Michael Cohen, who's a convicted liar, a perjurer, you know, a, a psychopathic degenerate liar, nothing less, to have him as the star witness against you is the best thing that could happen to any defendant whatsoever. And as far as these other cases that that you think are stronger than the Stormy Daniels situation, all of them, if you take them apart piece by piece, are all weak. That's why nothing has happened so far on those other cases. The documents case, if you indict Trump on the documents, are you going to indict Joe Biden and Vice President Pence? This is these document situations have been going on for decades and decades, right? This is just picking out a guy and trying to fit a crime to him, okay? They're desperate. They're desperate on all fronts to attack him. They're attacking him. And I think people are going to see that this is happening. And a lot of people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are not going to like this on Election Day. 
when, uh, if and when Trump is indicted in either the Georgia case or the documents case, we'll have the three of you back and we'll analyze that one. But let me ask you guys a question in terms of the the timing here. Uh, some uh, This is actually a question from a listener that they emailed me. Someone on cable said that when a defendant is charged simultaneously in more than one jurisdiction – the prosecutor who brought the first case won't necessarily necessarily try it first, but will, for various reasons, defer to another prosecutor. And that could get around the problem uh, that some people have of the Bragg's case being the weakest and the least significant. Bragg could choose to let Georgia go first or the independent counsel uh, that's uh, bringing the federal documents case go first. Uh, David, as best you understand it, how would they determine if there are multiple Multiple indictments, who gets to go first? Well, that's a great question. It may depend whether he has co-defendants in some of the other cases, right? So if there are, let's say, three co-defendants in the Georgia phone call case, uh, one of them might be uh, Giuliani, actually. One of them might be Meadows, um, let's say, and it's Trump. So it would depend on the schedule of Giuliani and Meadows to some extent, you know, when that case could go to trial if Trump's the only defendant in New York in this case, as it seems clear that he is the only defendant, then that might weigh into the balance. In the federal uh, cases, there would be a Speedy Trial Act, which requires trial within 70 days, but it always gets waived. There's always good cause. So I really don't think that any of these cases, any of the other three cases, uh, would get to trial at the, on the track that they're going. I've always thought the Georgia case would have some defendants go first, and then they would try to flip them against Trump, and Trump would be in a second round down in state court in Georgia. And as to the documents case, I do have to disagree. I think it's actually a very strong case and very different from Biden because there was this whole obstructive conduct. There were the false certifications that were sent to the FBI and the Department of Justice. His lawyer down there, Trump's own lawyer, is going to have to testify uh, why that uh, this declaration was submitted by somebody else who I think the government sees as being kind of like the fall person. Uh, the lawyer got together with Trump. Trump said whatever he said. Somebody else signed the paper that there'd been a diligent search. There was nothing down there. And then there hadn't been a, a diligent search. And they found lots and lots of stuff. And we all saw it displayed with those um, security labels, those red and gold security labels still on the outside, top secret. And, of course, the insurrection, everybody has a different view of. But I view the not tamping it down for the three and a half hours after the incendiary speech, after saying, let's all go to the Capitol. I see that as being very important in the case. But that case, I do agree with your other guests, would be extremely divisive. Um, And we're going to have to see. I want to agree with him on one other point, if I might. Um, One of the arguments for the people who say Bragg's case is really strong is if it was really strong, why wasn't it brought by the Department of Justice? Forget about Barr. Merrick Garland was the attorney general as of March 2021. The case was timely. The five-year statute of limitations hadn't run yet. It's pretty clear that whatever Honig says, the Department of Justice didn't bring it and um, Garland didn't bring it. So to the extent that people argue it's a really strong case and we need to wait and see, it may be like a great case with all this evidence on top of Michael Cohn. 
it wasn't this quantum of evidence enough to persuade a Democratic attorney general to go on it, was it? Uh, let me ask you something, William. And, and again, let's hold off on uh, breaking down the documents case and the Georgia case until those indictments come down. And then we will have you guys back and we'll do this again. But um, on the issue of the grand jury, I've been on a grand jury and they tell you every day uh, when you're on a grand jury, what happens in that grand jury room is supposed to be secret. Now, um, how is it that we know all about this stuff? I mean, now, obviously, Trump has tweeted about it or Truth social about it. But, William, we know a lot about what's likely to come here. In your view, William, where are these leaks likely coming from? Prosecutors, defense attorneys, grand jurors themselves? What do you think? What's your hunch? Yeah, I mean, a case like this, everyone's talking. The entire building's talking. Um, You know, so procedurally, yes, grand jury is a secret proceeding. No one knows. But again, in in a case like this, I mean, you can have a number of people talking from the inside. It could be that even within the office, there's a little bit of a leak just to inform. Um, They invited Trump to come and testify in the grand jury. So they were informed a bit his attorneys of what was going forward and just technically we kind of know who went into the grand jury Mm -hmm. right we know that uh cohen went in we know that stormy went in there's a few people we don't know that went into the grand jury but just based off of that just by cohen going in we know and and stormy going in, we know it's kind of connected to this activity so we're able to put a few pieces together what he could be charged with but again going back to cohen being your star witness the issue boils down to intent. And when you have Cohen, who has pled guilty to his own crime, separate and apart from activities that he did with Trump, it's going to be difficult for the prosecutors to take the jury to Trump now, as he now says that Trump intended for him to do this because Trump didn't do anything by his own hand. It's always by proxy. And that's what makes these cases very difficult, especially for, you know, a very sophisticated actor like Trump. All right. We're going to uh, continue with Matthew Mary, William Ibakwe and David Katz in a moment. And we will get to your calls. Uh, there's still a few lines open and we'll try and get to as many of your questions as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Georgia courtroom was crowded as Ellie Mae took the stand. She was accusing Reverend Joe Henry of being a no-good preaching man. She said, the Reverend partook of my lovely body. The Reverend said, she lies. The jury said, now listen, I'll do the talking, and the courts will justify. Prosecuting attorneys start pacing the floor, sweating and making threats. The judge's wife sitting back there in the back row said, hey, judge, I object. Cause Reverend Joe Henry is a good man. He preached all over the bottom land. He spoke so child could understand. And there ought to be a whole lot more good folks like Reverend Joe Henry. Uh, the great Clarence Carter of Patches fame, uh, one of his great songs about the criminal justice system. You know, Clarence Carter's still alive. We're going to see if we can get him on the uh, on the show 
and let's see if we can do it sooner rather than later. I'm going to make a note to myself to reach out to him next week. We have an all-star legal panel. Uh, we're going to tackle as many of your questions as we can here. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Alex in California. Hello, Alex. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just had a quick comment and then a follow-up question. So the comment is, uh, the editors of The Economist just issued their response to the indictment. They say that the case is weak and that Alvin Bragg should never have pursued it. Uh, so here's my question. Uh, the Economist is actually popular among people with a college education. Uh, do you and your guests believe that uh, this editorial position is the position of most Americans uh, who are highly educated? Well, I'm the only person here that uh, doesn't have any postgraduate degrees, so I'll defer to uh, the gentlemen that do. Um, uh, uh, Maddie, I'll begin with you. What do you think of what The Economist said there? I think I think it's not about being educated or not being educated. It's about having common sense. What we're doing right now is buying into this non-reality that this is a legal issue going on. It's a political issue, and we're talking about it as if it were a real case. When I look at the Stormy Daniels case, the only crime that I could imagine that should have been pursued in this situation was whether or not Stormy Daniels and her agents are guilty of blackmail. This is what normal people would think about. Stretching the law as the law has been stretched totally out of shape is something I think you don't need to be educated to be repelled by. And I don't think a jury, even the ultra-liberal juries of New York, are going to buy into this case. Uh, William, David, go ahead. Can I take a crack at that? Please, please. You know, I'm a federal criminal defense attorney right now. You know, uh, federal income tax uh, cases, uh, people getting loans they're not entitled to. And it is not that uh, – now, you can say that he should not have used his prosecutorial discretion in this case for many reasons, that he didn't think the witnesses were that strong. You know, there's a lot of prosecutorial discretion. Nine out of ten cases may not get brought. But the, the reality is that a lot of cases are brought that are based on falsely signing a piece of paper. And, you know, the prosecution theory, let's give the prosecutor his due. We've certainly said enough critical things about him, and apparently the economist does too – But this was not a legal fee. It was a payoff. It was hush money. It was paid before the election so that people wouldn't know that Trump was an adulterer, a philanderer, and he slept with this porn star at the time that his wife had just given birth. What an inopportune time to do what he did if Stormy Daniels is correct about it. He didn't want it to come out before the election. It didn't come out. Trump won the election. That's a campaign violation because it was something of great value to the campaign. It should have been reported. Even when they filed the reports later on, they didn't report it correctly. They said it was Michael Cohen's legal fee, and he was then paid over $200,000 so he could get the $130,000 back and so he could pay the taxes on it. Now, that is a case that could easily not have been brought. It's a case the federal prosecutors not to, not decided not to bring. But to say that it's like not a real case, it's nothing but a political act, and nothing about it is a real case, and there is some corroboration. There's the other person that he had the relationship with, allegedly, who had the catch and kill from the National Enquirer. She got bought off and her story got killed. It's sort of a part of the same pattern. And you have Michael Cohn, who, for better or worse, was convicted of it. And the Southern District of New York at the time said 
that Trump was co-conspirator number one, and that it's not rare, it's not rare that somebody who went to jail because they were the errand boy for somebody wants to tell on the person who sent them on the errand and told them exactly what the illegality was. Now, you cannot believe Cohn, but it's not something outlandish that it's not even a case. Uh, William, Frank, Frank yeah, can I interrupt for okay. a second? Frank? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. All right, let me interrupt for a second. Listen, here, here's the proof in the pudding. This case that we're talking about, all right, if Donald Trump weren't the defendant, and if Alvin Bragg, a woke district attorney, weren't the prosecutor, there would be no case. Name one other case in the state of New York or any other case like this. There is none. Well, yeah, we made the point that this Michael would Cohn. be a novel, a novel prosecution, right? That was the uh, the federal Trump. case, and it's all about the campaign. It's all about derailing Trump. William, unless you want to weigh in yeah. on this, I want to try and cover at least uh, a little bit more ground and grab a couple more quick calls. I'll throw in a quick one. Mm-hmm. You know, being a trial attorney and 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 the prosecutor out in LA did did great. Being a being a trial attorney in sales, you you pick a group of people who will buy your story. This case is in New York County, and Trump's lost a lot of ground from the people in New York. New York County is an educated county, and they're willing to buy this story. And the common sense argument is that he probably did make this payment because he probably didn't want Stormy to talk, and he probably had Cohen take the money in like that. It's kind of easy to believe, and so it has nothing to do with how educated the group is. New York County probably buy that story. All right, uh, gentlemen, um, uh, David says this is very much a legal case. Uh, Maddie says we should not be talking about it as a legal case. It's more of a political case. Sort of the area where legality and politics meet is constitutional law, and I just want you guys to clarify something and just make sure my reading of the Constitution is correct, because Michael Goodwin who's the senior political columnist for the New York Post, very bright man, in his Sunday uh, column uh, on uh, in the Post this weekend, he was talking about all these criminal cases Trump is facing, and he said in his column, conviction in any criminal case could disqualify him from holding federal office, including the presidency. Now, I cited the example of Debs and Lyndon LaRouche, and I, I don't believe that is correct. Can you three gentlemen comment on what, if anything, a conviction would do to Trump's constitutional eligibility to holding the office? That one's easy. He's eligible. Mm -hmm. None of these cases would disqualify him. The only thing that would have disqualified him was the impeachment trial in the Senate. If the Senate had convicted him, then they could have moved on to disqualify him, and that would have stopped him from holding any federal office again in his life. But none of these cases would disqualify him. Um, That's a simple answer. Um, None of these would stop him from running or holding office. All right. Let me try and squeeze in a few more people here. Tom in Boston, what's your question? Hey, uh, I was wondering, is, is there any legal uh, culpability from the Democrats? Remember three years ago or four years ago, they set up a, a taxpayer-paid slush fund to pay off the woman they get involved with? Remember all the Democrats that were paying off these women? I mean, is there a specific case that you remember, Tom? Well, no, no, but there was a lot of them. They, 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 they come out, the taxpayer-paid slush fund, the Democrats are using to pay up all these women. Oh, you're talking about the sexual harassment uh, settlements? Are you talking about that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, anybody have a a comment on that? Be my guest. Yeah, Yeah, Frank. The Democrats are not going to be indicted for anything. (laughs) Excuse me. 
as long as we have Biden as president, Hochul as governor of New York, and we have uh, Adams as the mayor, nobody, no Democrat's going to be indicted for anything ever. The atrocious criminal acts were committed during the election of 2016 by the Democrats and 2020, and it's all swept under the rug over and over again. So well, nothing's going to happen to the Democrats. Well, I mean, and there God are a bit. And I, I, I'm, I'm fearful that when the Republicans get back in power, they're going to start doing the same thing to the Democrats. And that's the end of this country. Well, we have seen Democratic officials uh, prosecuted. I mean, we, you know, a long time I, I, ago. well, William mentioned John Edwards, but more recently you have uh, you have, um, you know, the prosecution that the Justice Department brought against Bob Menendez. You have Shelley Silver in New York. You have Carl Kruger. I mean, there are uh, Demo- yeah, Anthony Weiner, certainly my colleague, uh, my colleague here. There are Democrats, uh, Jesse Jackson Jr. There are plenty of Democrats that have gotten um, charged with with all sorts of uh, of crimes. Uh, you uh, and either of years you gentlemen, ago, Frank, years Frank, ago, can I, that's can, not happening Frank, now. I, go ahead, David. Go Frank, ahead. Can I say something? Frank, David Katz, can I say something really quickly? Because I think it's important that your your listeners um, know this. And I think all all of us can agree on this. Any prosecutor worth his or her salt is completely blind to politics. I was an assistant U.S. attorney. I was under Ronald Reagan. I was hired by Reagan's uh, U.S. attorney. You know who else worked in that office? Adam Schiff. And uh, he and I worked together under Reagan, under Reagan's U.S. attorney, and we, we turned a blind eye to politics. Now, of course, for Schiff, it was different. He was, it went on to be a Democratic congressman. It's different if you're in Congress. But when he was a prosecutor, when I was a prosecutor, I hope the prosecutors that you guys have seen in court, any of them worth their salt, do not care about anyone's politics. They hopefully evaluate the cases, just whether it's a good case or not. They do have to exercise their discretion, but hopefully it's never based on an improper uh, consideration. And politics is an absolutely improper consideration for prosecuting or not prosecuting. William, that is a little it is a little different, though, when you have elected prosecutors, which you don't have the federal level, but you you have at the at the county level. I mean, your boss in the Brooklyn DA's office had to run for election. And let's face it, in a borough like Manhattan, if you can secure a criminal (laughs) conviction against Against Donald Trump, that's going to make you pretty popular in when you run for re-election, right? Sure, sure. I mean, assistant, assistant uh, uh, prosecutors, you know, you you keep a straight line. Um, I can't speak for the elected official, but they are, you know, serving uh, on privilege of the citizens, and so there must be a thought at some point, not that it directs you. But there has to be a thought about what does this look like? When I was under the um, I was um, uh, working under Ken Thompson, and this was at the beginning of a lot of police prosecutions. um, I do remember there was a young man, a young Asian police officer who inadvertently killed a kid. Uh, Right. Officer Peter Liang. I remember that. Yeah. And and it was a lot of it was a lot to think about in bringing that prosecution. And I'm sure that there was a thought about this young man in the community he's from and, you know, what this looks like to, you know, the total national politics that's going on. Gentlemen, so I don't think it influences, but I think that there's a thought. Gentlemen, we have to end it there. William Ibakwe, Matthew Mary, Check out Matthew Mary's podcast, A View from Mulberry Street. David Katz, we're going to have you all back soon. Thank you so much for the time. Get some sleep. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we are going to do denunciations in just a moment uh, where I will denounce people that need denouncing. Uh, first, let me, uh, let me give a quick pat on the back. Not a, not a formal commendation, but um, a, 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 a mild, very mild attaboy to the rest of our staff that has not taken off to recover from yesterday's Yankee game. Uh, Kenneth, of course, went to a Yankee game in the middle of the afternoon and was unable to function to be here in time for the show. Now, I don't blame him. You know, he requested the day off well in advance, and God bless him. He's entitled to do what he wants with his spare time. But, you know, that has led the rest of us to all do a bit more work than we normally do, especially Alex Barnard, but certainly Matt Blaze as well. And it's Kenny. He's been arrested for prostitution in New York. Matt uh, Matt Blaze is doing a great job. But also Broadway Bill Lee is here, not the DJ, but the person who was subjected to having to work with Curtis Sliwa for a good portion of the weekend. And uh, I'm sure when you work those odd hours on the weekend, the last thing you want to do is start those nocturnal hours a day earlier. So thank you to Bill for helping us out uh, today as well. Uh, meantime, though, on to the denouncing. The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I must denounce the state of Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Some data from WalletHub compared the 50 states, ranking them from most to least stressed. That's right. They compared 41 key indicators of stress to determine the places to avoid and achieve a more relaxing life. There's family-related stress, work-related stress, money-related stress, stress, health and safety-related stress. And they found that when you add it all up, the state with the total most amount of stress is Mississippi. Mississippi. What do you think the least stressed state was? I'm going to tell you. It surprised me. I would not have guessed this. The least stressed state is Minnesota. Minnesota. You know, is it any wonder my friend Jen Sabetti moved out of New York to move to Minnesota? 
I guess she couldn't handle the stress. I must denounce CBS News. I can't even believe this, uh, this story that I'm about to leave. When I fir- my wife first told me about this story, I said, no, 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 no. You- you've got to have something wrong. You've got to have something wrong. There's no way this can be. Sure enough, it was exactly right. Top executives at CBS News have actually banned staffers from using the word transgender when reporting on the Nashville shooter, despite the fact that police have said the Nashville shooter was transgender and cited it as a key point in the case. So in a memo that they put out that was obtained by the New York Post on Tuesday, this is what it said. The shooter's gender identity has not been confirmed by CBS News. Well, it was confirmed by the police. Why can't you just report that this is what the police said? If you don't want to call a person transgender, say the police are saying this was a transgender woman. As such, this is from the memo that they wrote, as such, we should avoid any mention of it as it has no known relevance to the crime. Should that change, we can add and we'll revisit. That is total bubkiss. That is total nonsense. It's BS. It's Barbara Streisand. That the police are saying it is relevant, at least possibly relevant to the case. Now, some people are saying, well, what if we interview someone and the person that we interview says something about being transgender? Oh, we're probably going to cut it out. What? This is not news. This is changing the story to craft a certain narrative. Um, this is outrageous. And everybody ought to be outraged, wherever you fall. And even if you are transgender, the fact that they won't even use the word transgender when the police are using that word, I mean, that's Orwellian in terms of control of language. CBS News, I do denounce you. And I like CBS News. I watch 60 Minutes. I watch CBS Sunday Morning. Got to denounce them. I must also denounce the um, Louisiana worker who was fired for the Louisiana worker who was fired for urinating in the water supply. I mean, you talk about something that is really gross. I was thinking about going to Louisiana in July for a political function. I'm not joking. This has seriously altered my decision. So the we don't have this person's name yet, but he's 57 years old. He was a, co- a water company employee, and thankfully he's out of a job after he was seen peeing in the water supply at a Louisiana treatment plant. I mean, this is just absurd. And if you look at the video of the March 19th incident, it shows the employee adjust the camera up so that the lower half of his body is out of frame before he's heard urinating in one of the water tanks. He walks away, then returns a short time later to move the camera to its original position. I mean, this is just crazy. If you work in a water plant, I have to assume that there's toilets there. At least there's got to be port authorities. 
You can't hold it in enough to not pee in the water that people are going to drink? I mean, sheesh. Sheesh. I want to denounce Desmond Ramsey. Desmond Ramsey is uh, an evil person. He's also not too bright. Uh, Desmond Ramsey actually... He actually went so far as to try to hire a hitman to kill his son. He was offering to pay thousands of dollars for this hitman to kill his son. But he was caught after dialing the wrong number. First of all, imagine being so demented that you want to kill your son. I get upset. My son bit his lip yesterday. And was bleeding, I'm still traumatized by it. I can't imagine wanting to kill your son. Then, imagine wanting to kill him so much that you're willing to pay thousands of dollars to do so. Then, imagine that you're so stupid as you're dialing a prospective hitman that you dial the wrong number. Desmond Ramsey, I do denounce you. He will now be spending the um, a year and a half in prison. I must also denounce J.J. Wells. J.J. Uh, Wells is going to be... J.J. Wells has been forced to apologize to J.K. Rowling... Uh, J.J. Wells is an LGBTQ plus activist who's being forced to apologize for calling J.K. Rowling a Nazi after she threatens him with legal action. So J.J. Wells, whose Twitter bio says he's a drag queen, got into a heated exchange with Rowling in which he said she was a Nazi or at least has views that align with them. Throughout the exchange, Rowling threatened Wells with legal action twice. And this person kept going. Later that same day, Rowling tweeted, Okay, okie dokie, JJ, we'll play it your way. Give my regards to your solicitor. She then added a winky face emoji. Then Wells posted a series of tweets apologizing, leading many to assume he was contacted by Rowling's lawyers, and he has indeed issued a public apology. Let me say this. Once and for all, don't compare people to Nazis unless they're actually Nazis, like the people protesting outside that musical parade or the people fighting the Azov Azov battalion that's fighting in Ukraine. Those are actual Nazis. You shouldn't be calling children's book authors Nazis because you disagree with their views on transgender issues. I must also denounce the New York City United Federation of Teachers. They actually had scheduled a seminar, a workshop that you could get credits for, professional credits, on the harmful effects of whiteness. That's right. The UFT, which represents more than 190,000 teachers, paraprofessionals, and child care workers in the five boroughs of New York City, had planned the virtual Holding the Weight of Whiteness seminar, but it has been canceled because they said they received an influx of hate. 
Now, I'm glad it was canceled. Uh, I hate that it was due to hate reasons, but this is not something that the UFT ever, ever should have entertained. I must denounce these Ukrainian war volunteers, many of whom are American, who rushed to Ukraine to volunteer for the war, and it turns out they have spent most of their time in Ukraine lying, being wasteful, and bickering. Uh, the New York Times had the story over the weekend, as did a number of other publications. They rushed to Ukraine by the thousands, many of them Americans who promised to bring military experience or money or supplies to the battleground of a righteous war. Hometown newspapers hailed their commitment. Donors backed them with millions of dollars. Now, after a year of combat, many of these homespun groups of volunteers are fighting with themselves and undermining the war effort. Some have wasted money or stolen valor. Others have cloaked themselves in charity while also trying to profit off the war. One retired Marine lieutenant colonel from Virginia is the focus of a federal investigation into the potentially illegal export of military technology. A former Army soldier arrived in Ukraine only to turn traitor and defect to Russia. A Connecticut man who lied about his military service has posted live updates from the battlefield, including his exact location and boasted about his easy access to American weaponry. A former construction worker is hatching a plan to use fake passports to smuggle in fighters from Pakistan and Iran. Who could have predicted this? Oh, that's right. Everybody. Everybody. Uh, Hope you think that money is being well spent there in Ukraine, my friends. I want to denounce the Shasta District Fair. Very sad story. Jessica Long is nine years old. She's a nine-year-old California girl. And uh, her family brought home a goat, a goat named Cedar, seven-month-old white boar. And then the uh, little girl and the goat formed an attachment. The little girl fed and cared for this goat every day. However, the family, and shame on them for this, shame on the family, the family decided to enter Cedar into the Shasta District Fair's Junior Livestock Auction in June of last year, where the animals are sold off to be used as meat. But before the auction started, the Long family changed their minds and wanted to take Cedar off the market. Well, the fair denied the request and sold it. So the mom brazenly stole the goat back before it was given to the buyer. Now, what followed is surreal. It's the stuff of a movie, really. What followed was, I guess you could call it a wild goat chase. Oh, it sent officers hundreds of miles across the country to retrieve the goat via a search warrant before handing it to the individuals who bought it. And then they killed Cedar and roasted him on a barbecue for their guests. So now uh, the Long family is suing. I don't know why they submitted the goat for auction 
anyway, in the first place, when the little girl really, really was fond of this goat, shame on them. But what kind of monsters do you have to be at the Shasta District Fair that once the family says, no, 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 let us have the goat back, to not give them the goat back? And if you, you the family's going to go so far as to steal the goat, if you're the person that paid the $902, wouldn't you say to them, look, just give me my money back and we'll call it even? I, I'm denouncing everybody here involved in this story, except for Jessica Long and Cedar. May he rest in peace. But Shasta District Fair, I do denounce you. I must denounce St. Paul, Minnesota. And this is no reflection on uh, Sid Rosenberg's cousin, Norm Coleman, who was once the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, if memory serves. But um, they, and I'm sure a lot of New Yorkers can relate to this, and a lot of Baltimoreans, in St. Paul, they have a big problem with potholes. And isn't it the worst when you're driving, wherever you happen to be, and you don't see a pothole right away, and boom, you hit a pothole and you get a flat tire because of it. Sometimes it even dents your rim, which is not such a simple fix as just fixing a flat tire. So some citizens were trying to help out their fellow motorists. So they started buying neon-colored spray paint to mark the potholes and make them more visible so no one will forget them. And if nothing else, one of the people doing it, Kathy S. of St. Paul, said, if nothing else, maybe the holes might become more decorative. Well, now the city of St. Paul is telling people, don't do that. St. Paul Public's Works Director, Sean Kershaw, said this week that the markings, if they're obvious from a distance at all, would likely do more to confuse drivers and endanger the well-intentioned spray painters than spare a vehicle alignment. Untrained volunteers crouched in the street, marking holes as they see fit, could easily be run over. Well, I applaud these people. In fact, I think I might start doing this in New York, spray painting potholes all over the place. So, St. Paul, if you don't want... People spray-painting potholes, fix the potholes, or even repave some streets. Imagine that. Finally, I must give a denunciation to a 42-year-old unnamed Uber driver who decided to run a red light. Now, okay, a lot of people run red lights, but he actually caused a crash And of all people, he crashed into the vehicle of the Philadelphia police commissioner, Danielle Outlaw. Did you know that? That the police commissioner in Philadelphia was was, was literally an outlaw? I had no idea. So Danielle Outlaw was one of four people injured after this Uber driver ran a red light in Center City. And I am denouncing that Uber driver. Don't run red lights, folks. And if you're going to do it, make sure you don't hit anybody. If you do hit someone, make sure it's not the police commissioner. Otherwise, you too may be hearing these words. I do denounce you. All right. Um, If you have comments on anyone that I have denounced, or you want to comment on anything else we've covered, 
thus far. You're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano. Remember this as the uh, one of the key songs in Jesus Christ Superstar, the film, the musical. I think technically it's a rock opera uh, or um, the stage show. I never saw the stage show, uh, but I am a big fan of the movie. It is one of my favorites. I absolutely love it. And it struck me as appropriate to play uh, given that um, next week is Holy Week. Have you? Do you know who um, sang the? Back it up a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Or maybe just lower his volume. Was, oh, geez. Yeah, that was loud. Okay. Right. I couldn't hear myself for a yes. second there. Now, now, thanks like, that I have no hearing in that ear anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I can't hear you either. Do you know who sang the lead vocals on the album version? Uh, no, this? fill us in. The lead singer of Deep Purple, Ian Gillen. Is that true? Yes, indeed. Wow, I had no idea. See, pays to move Alex a little closer to the studio. Every once in a while, he can contribute. In a uh, in a meaningful way, even if he does so loudly. But, um, you know, it's funny. This song is also in the most recent edition of Ted Lasso, the most recent episode, which my wife and I uh, watched last night, which was uh, which was quite good. I think it's the third episode of the season. And um, and we both uh, we both enjoyed it so far. I think it might be uh, my favorite. So a couple things. I, you know, I send a lot of letters, right? I, I send a lot of correspondence for various reasons. And um, Saturday morning, I found myself awake from 1.30 in the morning on. And while I'm painfully listening to Curtis insult me with the help of uh, Avery and all of the callers who pretend to be nice to me on my show and then go to Curtis and just <laughs> bash me like crazy... I am uh, catching up on all my correspondence, and I'm writing all these letters. And I realize I, that after a point, 
I'm now out of postage stamps. And then I, my office is a little bit of a mess. It's the bane of my wife's existence. She almost gets, when, when she walks into my office, it's such a mess and it's so disorganized. She has to, I see her, she has to physically stop herself from yelling, right? You, she has to almost stifle herself to control herself because she's a neat freak. And my office is, it's not quite as bad as Joe Franklin's office, but left to my own devices, it would be. So I see that I I go to where I keep extra stamps. And I remember that during the pandemic, I bought a whole bunch of stamps because the post office was really struggling. So what I said is, if every American buys a book of stamps right now or a couple of sheets of stamps, that would solve all the postal services um, fiscal problems. And I pointed out all the great things that the Postal Service does. I'm a big fan of the Postal Service. These guys are heroes as far as I'm concerned. I love the Postal Service and the men and women that work in the Postal Service. Love them. But I said, all right, let me take out some of these stamps that I bought at the time. And I see I have one sheet of George H.W. Bush stamps, the commemorative George H.W. Bush stamps that came out three years ago, and one sheet of stamps honoring the moon landing. And I thought to myself, well, these are nice stamps. Uh, maybe I should save them instead of instead of using them on my letters. Maybe this could be uh, maybe this will be worth something someday or maybe it'll be something that Carmine wants uh, one day. And um, I didn't use them. I bought some more stamps. So I go on to the Postal Service website. And uh, I said, let me see what other stamps are out there. And it turns out there's some really neat stamps that you can buy on the Postal Service website. I start buying, uh, I bought a sheet of Yogi Berra stamps. But then I thought to myself, wait a minute. I love Yogi Berra. I'd like to send some of these stamps, but if I'm saving the George H.W. Bush stamps, and I'm not even really a Bush fan, uh, I mean, I respect him, but, you know, whatever. I don't need to get into my feelings about the Bushes. But I am a Yogi Berra fan. I'm a huge Yogi Berra fan. When you, If you ever see me in a softball game, whether it's in a league or an exhibition match, or if you ever saw me in a Little League game, I always wore the same number, number eight. For Yogi Berra. It wasn't for Bill Dickey, I'll tell you that. So I uh, I said, well, I want to send these Yogi stamps, but I should probably save a sheet. So I ended up buying one sheet to save and then two sheets to, to use as stamps. And then I start looking at some of the other stamps they have on there. They have Star Wars stamps. The droids from Star Wars. R2-D2, C-3PO... All the all the neat droids from stores, and I do the same thing. I said, "All right, let me get one book of stamp, one uh, sheet of stamps to send, one sheet of stamps to save, and then I do the same thing with the stamps commemorating the James Webb Space Telescope." And um, same situation, I do get two, and then I, I start thinking to myself, "Well, am I being silly?" Saving these stamps, maybe, you know, I know years ago, half of young people used to save stamps. Now, very few people, I think, save, uh, collect stamps. 
So I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe it's silly. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something that uh, Carmine and I will want to do, want to pursue together. But and I said, hey, they'll probably will be worth something one day. Maybe I'll get a couple more of these George Bush um, stamps. So I go online and they're, um, you know, they're 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 on they're they're available for a little bit more than face. Not much more. But a little bit more, meaning they should cost $11 for the amount of stamps. But if you go on Amazon, I think you could buy them for uh, like $17 or something along those lines. Maybe that includes uh, postage. And um, I said, you know, it's got to be worth something one day. It's got to be worth saving. And I think back to one of the first stamps that I ever really cared about. And it was from 30 years ago. And it was the Elvis stamp. You remember the Elvis stamp? Elvis 29. And Elvis had been dead for at least uh, however long you have to be dead before they make a stamp for you. And they had a big election. And over a million people voted in it. And you had a choice of choosing the young Elvis, kind of the, the hip teen idol Elvis, or the older, more mature Elvis. And I voted many times. And I got all my friends to vote. I got all my friends and all my family to vote for the older Elvis. I, of course, that would, it turns out, that would be the first of many elections that I would be on the losing side of. And the young Elvis won. But it was still cool to get it, and I have a poster of that stamp in my office, because I am an Elvis fan and I am a stamp fan. And I thought to myself, well, that stamp has got to be worth something. From 30 years ago, it was such a big deal. Over a million people um, voted in it. At the time, got to be worth something. And I go online to see if it is, in fact, worth anything. And it's really not. It was a 29-cent stamp, and you can buy it for, depending on where you're looking and what condition it is, for 60 cents, which is just about what the rate of inflation on 29 cents is, a dollar. So if my question is, if it's not really, if that stamp, still isn't worth anything. Does it even really make sense for me to save the George Bush stamps? I mean, I guess I could save it for sentimental reasons, but does it make sense for me to save one sheet of Yogi, one sheet of George Bush, one sheet of James Webb telescope? Or should I just, uh, I don't know, should I just use all these stamps as stamps? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. I know nothing about stamp collecting. When when my mom, when I was a boy, my mom got me some books. And you could make, have like a stamp collecting kit that I put in there, in these books. And that was kind of fun. But I never really stuck with it. So I don't know anything about uh, stamp collecting or... Anything along those lines. So if you know anything. I had one of those books. Oh, you do? Yeah, I did. When I was a kid, it was like. Do you know where yours is now? I have no idea. It's probably been thrown out who knows how many years ago. But it was one of those books where you buy it and it comes with stamps. Right, right, right. And I don't, I think that was as far as my stamp collecting went. Like, I never went to the post office and was like, oh, let me get this stamp and that stamp. And it was like, I had this book and every once in a while, I take it out and look at it and put it away. And that was the end of it. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty much my experience. I, um, you know, I had a couple of them, not just one. 
but I never really stuck with it. And so I don't even know if it makes sense to save these stamps or if I should just use them. If you have a, a feeling one way or another, let me know. 800-848-9222. Hey, I want to remind you, listen to the most recent edition of The Racket Report. We delve into the world of the Detroit Mafia. Really interesting. And I obviously knowing how obsessed I am with pizza and that I've been without pizza in over a month, you knew I was going to squeeze in some questions about Detroit pizza as well, which I did. I We spent a lot of time talking about Jimmy Hoffa and where Jimmy Hoffa's remains are. Because remember, when we had Dan Muldea on this show, he was convinced that Jimmy Hoffa's remains were in New Jersey. And Eric Sean said uh, from the Fox News Channel, who's an expert in this, he basically said the same thing that he thought that there was a good chance that these stamps were in the stamp, <laughs> that these remains were in New Jersey. So in any event, um, Scott Bernstein, who is an expert on this, he has a very different take on this. This is what uh, Scott Bernstein said of Hoffa's remains. Do you have any any theory as to where Hoffa's remains are? Yes, of course. Uh, there, <laughs> his, his remains don't exist. So the running around for the last fifty years uh, looking for them, is, you know, is the wild goose chase of all wild goose chases. So, w- what do you think? He was just dissolved in a vat of acid or something like that? No, I believe he was uh, taken to a sanitation company called Central Sanitation, which was owned by two of the uh, main co-conspirators in the the disappearance and murder of Jimmy Hoffa. I believe Hoffa was uh, put into an incinerator at Central Sanitation. Uh, his body was you know, burnt to a, to a crisp to the point where uh, there was only ashes left. And when the FBI knew what was going on and wanted to try to get in there and, and search it, uh, the, the mob decided to burn it down. And, you know, about six or seven months after Hoffa disappeared, Central Sanitation uh, went up in flames in an uh, in a, uh, arson fire. And that's why you've never been able to find a body, because the body and any traces of the body uh, went away when, when Central Sanitation was burned up. There's a lot more to this, though. I really hope you listen to the interview. How do you listen to the interview? Go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search The Racket Report. Go on to any podcast uh, app and search The Racket Report uh, with Frank Morano. Or I've also linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. I have gotten phenomenal response to this already. And I hope everyone listens to it, and I hope everybody gives me a um, a good review on iTunes, if that's where you choose to listen to it, or on Spotify, or as Governor Cuomo would say, on Apple. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Oh, hi. How are you? Oh, by the way, save your stamps. It's a wonderful hobby that they are able to get. They're like mini pieces of artwork. Recently, I pulled out my stamp collection because I was interested in selling it. And as I looked over it, I thought to myself, nah, I'm going to keep them because it's a wonderful hobby. Well, let me ask you this, Mark. I mean, I don't disagree with you uh, because I'm a collector. I I have a a collection of baseball cards. I have a collection of um, 
bobblehead dolls, and I like to collect things. But a, a massive collection of books, pretty decent collection of uh, wrestling magazines and comic books. However, uh, if these stamps, even that Elvis stamp, is not really worth anything from thirty years later. If these stamps are not going to do anything except take up space in my drawers, um, am, is it sort of a waste of time and money for me to save them instead of using them? I would save them because you, you actually made your case for saving them like me. I don't put them in binders. They take up such little space because That's they're true. flat. And, That's uh, true. And no, they don't, they don't take up much space at all. You know, by the way, you and I must have been born on the same date because everything that you just talked about, I have a massive comic book collection myself. I used to own a comic book store. So I have a massive inventory of comic books. I collect bobbleheads, baseball cards, and all that stuff, too. One day we're going to have to compare collections. Yeah, sounds good to me, Mark. Did you have something else on your mind? No, great show, by the way. Oh, great thanks. show on that thing, that thing with Trump. I think it's a shame what happened with him. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate that. Uh, David, uh, t- finding me on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitter as well, while you still can, until Elon Musk, as of tomorrow, takes away my check mark. Don't do it, Elon. Let me keep my check mark. So enjoy it while you can. You have uh, about what are twenty about twenty hours left from to see in you my check mark on Twitter at Frank Morano, at Frank M O R A N O. Uh, David writes, saving modern postage stamps is like saving fresh $2 bills. The likelihood of them ever becoming a collectible is extremely low. Okay. Man, man, man. I see with it. He's right on the $2 bills. You know, I love $2 bills. So whenever I go to the bank, which is frequently, I always ask for whatever $2 bills that they have. And I spend them like crazy because one of the problems with the $2 bill is people think it's rare. So because people think it's rare, when they come across one, they save it. They squirrel it away. They don't spend it. They don't put it in circulation. And so because they're not in circulation as much as the other bills, the Treasury Department doesn't print as many of them, and the banks tend not to order them. So what I do is I make a point of ordering and spending as many $2 bills as possible. Um, So there you go. So Dave says don't bother unless you see a misprint. I may still, with these commemorative stamps, um, buy one sheet for myself and then to use and then just, um, you know, and then just save the other sheet because Mark's right. It does take up very little space. I mean, it's basically, as a sheet, it's the thickness of a sheet of paper. So why not, right? 800-848-9222. The other big news, aside from the Trump indictment yesterday, was that my son has made the transition to one nap per day. Oh, yes. Took one nap yesterday. He had been a two-nap boy And now he is growing up before our very eyes, just taking one nap. I can tell you, though, by the end of the day, he was pretty cranky and pretty tired. So if if this late-in-the-day crankiness continues, we may revisit a second nap. We'll see. But uh, he was not at all a happy guy uh, towards the end of the day. Most of the day, he was pretty happy. 
But um, we'll see. Hopefully it's nice weather today. We can go for a little walk or something. 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. What's going on? Uh, as far as the stamps, it's really not worth it. You know, there's no upside on it. And like even people like Barra, you know, the people that appreciate them, they're all dying out. It's like all these classic cars, same thing. They're losing their value. But as far as the, for the price of some stamps, I recommend on Amazon. You ever heard of something called Bleed Stop? Wait, wait. What's it called? Bleed Stop. Leave Stop? It's about $15. Yeah, it's available on Amazon. You get it the next day. What, what is you it, though? I, I don't know. I'm having a tough time hearing you, Al. Um, bleed wh- Stop. Leave Stop. No, Bleed. Like you're bleeding? Oh, Bleed, bleed stop. stop. And what does it do? Yeah. It's available on Amazon. It costs you 15 bucks. Keep it in the house. God forbid... You know, young Carmine is going to be all over the joint, you know, as he gets, you know, emboldened and he gets stronger. If God forbid he ever got into any kind of trouble, you put this on, it's going to stop the bleeding within seconds. Of course, you have $15, you get like three or four of them. Really good to keep around. I'm telling you, you know. Oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to order some right now, actually. Yeah, another question is this, is um, you had said you're going to go to Springsteen. I've seen them a bunch of times, really good, especially in the Encore. But then you said, like, I really like Neil Sedaka. Well, I got a friend. She's a very professional singer. So for the hell of it, I said, you know what? I'm about to kick off any, anyway. I want to just, you know, it was your wife's birthday and Curtis's birthday. And I appreciate John and uh, everybody there. And I wanted to say, hey, you know, I'll dedicate a song for you there. But then I said to myself, I don't know what, what song he could possibly like by Neil Sedaka. You know, there's something Callum the Girl. So I got... The, the name of the song is called Laughter in the Rain. Oh, yeah, I like that song. It's a great song. It's for you and Rachel and Curtis. And uh, if you ever want to see it, the girl's name is, she's very good, uh, Monaco, and it sings, M-I-N-A-K-O, sings. So she did it on Monday. I think your, your wife's birthday was on sun, Monday, or Curtis is on Sunday, one or the other, you know, uh, but get that bleed stuff. I'm telling you. I just I just ordered some right as we're speaking, Al. Thank you very much. I appreciate the suggestion. You take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. 800-848-9222. Uh, Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes. Good morning, yeah. Frank. Hey. Good morning. Um, uh, I want to talk about Trump real quickly. But before that, real, you made me laugh out loud when you mentioned about Joe Franklin's office because I knew Joe. And that closet he used to call an office in the show world uh, building was amazing. He, I saw him stand on a stepladder to find something. It, they, things were piled up so high, and he knew exactly where they were. So uh, I, it made me laugh on that when you said that. Yeah, it's true. As um, he said, he uh, he knew the order of his disorder. Yeah. Oh, no. He knew. Uh, uh, he went exactly where it was, but it was, he literally had to stand on his tippy toes on a stepladder to get it. About about Trump, I'm not understanding. I'm not that good with politics. The statutes of limitations is over with, as far as I, I know. Is that correct or am I wrong? Well, look, um, we don't know what he's charged with, right? So everybody's uh, speculating, right? But the, uh, um, the amount of time since uh, he had sex with Stormy Daniels and the amount of time since Michael Cohen paid her off, that amount of time has elapsed. So... Um, there was one story. The Wall Street Journal reported that um, that maybe they were looking to charge him f- 
for multiple hush money payments to multiple women. So maybe they're going to allege this is a a continuing conspiracy that that uh, took place within the statute of limitations. Maybe they're going to use that Cuomo argument that uh, Cuomo um, his five month break during covid where he had pause on the statute of limitations. That gives Bragg a little bit more time. But I think it's a very weak uh, case. I mean, maybe they could say that the um, the time that he was president pauses the statute of limitations somehow. But I think that's going to be one of the key points that the Trump lawyers argue. Okay, because I I was just wondering how you can indict someone for something that is now not a crime. You know what I'm trying to say? We'll see what the charges they ultimately come up with are. uh, But once we know, once this indictment is unsealed in the coming days, I think we'll have a better better answer to that. Uh, Rick, thank you. Uh, 800-849-2227, open lines. We're going to continue with your calls straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Presley singing Suspicious Minds. Uh, Nobody like Elvis. And I really enjoyed that um, motion picture about his life as well, all about Elvis. I, uh, For the life of me, I can't remember the title, but it was something very clever, whatever it was. It was very good. It's all about Elvis. I'm sure you could find it somehow. Just kidding, obviously. The, uh, the title was just Elvis. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. A bunch of people want to comment on this uh, Trump indictment, and you're certainly welcome to. I'll get to your calls in a moment. But uh, as one of the callers in the first hour mentioned, this weekend is WrestleMania. And I kind of feel the same way about WrestleMania that I do opening day, which is even though my interest in pro wrestling has waned over the years, I still get really excited about WrestleMania. It was it's it's something that I have always associated with the best matches of the year, the creme de la creme, not just in pro wrestling, but in all of entertainment. Because WrestleMania is so much more than a wrestling spectacle. It's an entertainment spectacle. And from the time it started almost 40 years ago, you had... All sorts of um, you had all sorts of entertainers and celebrities that were a big part of it from inside the world of sports like Billy Martin, Muhammad Ali, Pete Rose to the world of music like Ray Charles and Cindy Lauper uh, to the world of talk shows like Morton Downey Jr. Very funny bit involving Morton Downey Jr. at the beginning of I believe it was WrestleMania four. And. um I still, if I'm home, I try to watch it. I do not like now that it's a two-day affair. It's too long. It's too much. 
too much. Uh, Matt Blaze, what's, I know you're a much bigger wrestling fan than I am these days. Yeah. Uh, what's your plan for watching WrestleMania this Well, weekend? I will watch Saturday night because mm-hmm. I'll And be what home. time did it start? Seven? Yeah, seven or eight. And now they have, I mean, because of the WWE, like, network. Right. And it's on Peacock. That they have, like, a pre-show where they talk about the matches like they would in, like, the Super Bowl. Yeah, they have a pre-show. Right. Sure, why not? Um, and, yeah, in the last year, I did start watching again. I had not watched wrestling in a good 12, 10, 12 years at least, except WrestleManias here and there. So it's been the last year that I've actually watched and kept up with what's going on. And what made you start watching it again? I don't know. I think I watched the WrestleMania, and I was like, you know— even though there isn't any blood anymore, because that was always the thing, was like, well, who's going to bleed? It's still entertaining. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still exciting. It's You still don't know who's going to win, even though it's scripted, and they know who's going to win. Sure. As a spectator, you don't know who's going to win. And they do a lot of th- uh, stunts and, and Yeah, no, no, no. I are... enjoy it whenever yeah. I do watch it. Um so uh, as far as uh, as far as your w- watching plan goes, you're right. going to watch just Saturday. No, well Sunday I'll be here, so I'll watch it Monday morning because by that time it'll be on Peacock because all the WrestleManias are available on Peacock. Like every, you can watch every single WrestleMania and a lot of the pay per views and specials. So I'll watch night one Saturday night, and then Sunday or some, Monday morning I'll watch some of night two. So does it start both nights at seven? I think so. I so, believe it starts yeah. at the same time. Um, but there are, I'm looking at the matches, and there's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on night one, and six on night two. Are there any old timers coming back? Yes. I, I thought I saw Rey Mysterio doing something. So Rey Mysterio is wrestling his son, Dominic Mysterio. Right. I saw a little bit of that. Because yeah. Dominic is now turned on his father, because they were tag team champs at one time together, the first father son duo. Right. And uh, so Ray uh, is being inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame tonight and then wrestling Dominic uh, Saturday night. But coming back. So it's, they're doing that on Friday night? The, the, the Hall of Fame is Friday night. And is that on WWE Network? I believe so. So you can watch that live? Yeah, I think you can watch that. Do you know what time that is? I don't know, probably seven or eight, okay. I would think. Okay, I'll check that um, out. So, but, but coming back of the of wrestlers that you would know, uh, so right now, Becky Lynch and Lita mm-hmm. are the tag team champions. So Lita came back. Right, okay. So it's Becky Lynch, Lita, and Trish Stratus. Okay, well, I like Trish Stratus. Against Damage Control, which is Bailey, Dakota Kai, and EO Sky, who you probably have no idea who, no. who they are. No, I don't. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, Cody Rhodes right. and Roman Reigns. Cody's probably going to take it. Um, Hell in the Cell is Edge. Oh, I know Edge, certainly. Edge, you know, and uh, versus Finn Balor, mm-hmm. who was sort of like, he was really big a few years ago. Really big. He's still big now, but. And any other old-timers, though, like in the era of a Rey Mysterio or, or an Edge? No. Nobody. I'm looking real quick. No, I mean, you know Ronda Rousey. She's, yeah, 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 yeah. She's been there. Brock Lesnar's still wrestling. Oh, Cena. Oh, so John Cena's wrestling John Cena's, and Brock Lesnar's Yeah, wrestling. John Cena's wrestling on night one for the U.S. Uh, okay. Title. All right. Well, those those are those are so from those you know. my era, certainly um, one of my years, anyway. Okay. Uh, maybe there'll be some surprises too. Hey, until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight, T-G-I-F. Thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Frank. Uh, thanks for starting your weekend with me. We're going to talk body language in about a half hour with uh, Tanya Ryman. I believe she's going to be here in studio with us, although she might be on the phone. I think she's going to be here, though. We're going to analyze the uh, body language from Trump world and what we can learn from that and uh, some other body language-related issues as well. And I, um, we have a lot of other fun stuff to get to throughout the course of the hour as well. But I was thinking back on yesterday's show. I don't, I'm not really sure how we got out on this subject, but sometimes it's fun when we go on a tangent and, and, and people call in and respond not to the topic that I had wanted to talk about, but to the tangent that I bizarrely went on. And for whatever reason, yesterday, a whole bunch of people started calling in and, um, writing me about the ages of people in the Bible. Because there are a lot of people in the Bible with long ages. And uh, you have uh, Noah supposedly lived to, I don't know, a hundred and something. You have uh, Methuselah, 969. Noah lived to 950. Adam lived to 930. Enoch lived to 365. Abraham, 175. Isaac lived to 180. Well, a whole bunch of people said um, yesterday that, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those people didn't really live to those ages. They calculated years differently in biblical times than they do now. And they didn't really live that long. Other people said, well, no, it's because they didn't have cigarettes back then and no one was smoking, so you could live that long. They also didn't have vaping even, apparently. So um, the point is I have no idea, obviously. Neither does anybody else who's offering any of these theories on them. But it got me thinking about the things that are in the Bible and how much of it should really be taken literally. And I have to tell you, and... I am a uh, I believe in the gospels, the four gospels very strongly. A lot of the other stuff in the New Testament, a lot of the stuff with the apostle Paul and I realize this is somewhat apocryphal for me to say, but a lot of that stuff I don't put as much stock in, I have to be honest. But the four gospels even though 
Jesus is a bit different in one than he has the other three, uh, I do put a lot of confidence in. And I've always really viewed the Gospels, even though sometimes they have different versions of the same events, I've always viewed the Gospels as sort of literally the Word of God, right? But the Old Testament, I have viewed more as the inspired Word of God. The other stuff that's in the New Testament, I'll take as a case-by-case basis. And I don't, I don't proclaim by any stretch to be a biblical scholar. Far from it. Um, you know who's a biblical scholar? My mother-in-law. She has nine children. Nine children. Every single one of her children, my wife and all of her siblings, has a biblical name. Every single one. Joshua, Jared, Daniel, Rachel. Deborah, Sharon, um, Adam, obviously, um, and uh, what are the other two? I'm going to embarrass myself not remembering the, the other two. Did I say Sarah? I think I, Sarah, and then um, and then who's who, who's last? Who's last? Oh, whatever. I've lost track. Uh, th- that's the problem with that many. Deborah, Daniel, you know, whatever. There's a lot of them, but they all have biblical names. You get it. So. I spent a good portion of my day yesterday revisiting the theory that maybe that what's in the Old Testament and the New Testament to some extent about UFOs and or aliens in the Bible, maybe there's some legitimacy to this. Because people have claimed this for years. We had Reverend Barry Downing, who's a Presbyterian minister. We had him on the show, and he made a very strong case that a lot of that there's a significant amount of UFO and alien activity in the Bible. And uh, and there is, quite frankly. And if you look at one of the most famous books ever written on this subject, Chariots of the Gods which uh, was written by Eric Von Doniken and has sold more than 45 million copies since its release back in the 1960s. Von Doniken argues that UFOs are all over the Bible. And he argues that the Ark of the Covenant was actually a radio transmitter that enabled Moses to communicate with beings in a spaceship that guided the Israelites across the wilderness during the Exodus. I have no idea if that's true, but that's what he believes. So I said to myself, let me go and look at all the instances of UFOs and or potential alien activity that's in the Bible. And this took a lot of time today. Or yesterday. Time that I didn't really have, quite frankly. And I did my typical just go down the rabbit hole. I started reading. Then I started ordering books. Then, um, and my wife just loves the thought of me ordering more books. She sees me pull out my credit card. What are you ordering? What are you ordering? Oh, nothing. Nothing, honey. I'm out of promotional pens. I just gave Broadway Bill Lee my last promotional pen. I'm ordering more pens. Uh, Really, it's books about biblical theories of ufos keep in mind that i have no time to read books but i started ordering them like crazy and it's an indication that i do have a real problem and so i started reading article after article watching documentary after documentary and i have to tell you i am becoming 
increasingly convinced that a lot of these heavenly descriptions in the Bible, Old and New Testament, might have been UFO sightings. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, book 1, chapters 1 through 28, chapter 1, verses 1 through 28, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of uh, King Jehoiakim. Sorry, I realize I mispronounced it. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked... Behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Zechariah, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire the flashing, and fire flashing forth continually. And then in the midst, oh, I read that one. Um... Kings, chapter 2, verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Isaiah, chapter 60, verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? Ezekiel 116, as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. Acts 9.3, now as we went on his now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Revelation 16:14 For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Colossians 1:16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. Corinthians 11:14 and no, well whatever it goes on there's there's many different aspects of this. Um, but Mark 9, 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. There's instance after instance of this. Um, on the History Channel show, Ancient Aliens, they've spent a fair amount of time on this. Delving into this question, Nick Redfern is a writer who has explored this a, a fair amount. He talked on the History Channel 
about a possible Jesus UFO encounter. If we look at it from the context of today's alien abduction stories, you know, was God coming down from the sky actually a UFO descending? Was he taken aboard, abducted onto a UFO and held for 40 days and then returned? I think, you know, if we look at it in that context, we've got what sounds like a classic abduction. Philip Coppins on the History Channel talking about Jesus's possible alien encounter. Basically, his people recognize him, but also see that he has physically changed. And so this is very interesting because if you were to take it from a biblical perspective, you would think that an encounter with God is something nice, something phenomenal, but not that it has physical effects. In the case of the Moses encounter, what you have is something very physical, something very specific, suggestive that what happened to him is a very physical encounter with a deity, an extraterrestrial being, rather than what we would generally classify as divine. Do you put any stock in this? Do you think that some of what's being described in the Bible as chariots of fire and the like, I don't want to read the whole list here, but there's a long list. Do you think this could be what we see today as UFO sightings or the kind of thing that we hear about today as alien abductions? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. What I have always found fascinating, and I continue to find fascinating, is Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. The Nephilim. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward when the sons, plural, the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Um, it continues. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that their wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And um, they just Nephilim is sort of considered, they consider this a race of giants, basically. And I've gotten really into William Shatner's show, The Unexplained, And evidently, there is some evidence to suggest, and I'm going to let Shatner explain it, that they may have actually discovered some skeletons belonging to a race like the Nephilim, these giants on Earth, as Shatner explains. Lovelock, Nevada, 1911. Inside a narrow cave... Two miners are searching for bat guano, a key ingredient in making fertilizer. But as they head deeper into the darkness, they make an unexpected discovery. They find more than 40 human skeletons, some of which 
are abnormally large. William Henry describes this finding on uh, the unexplained. In the book of Genesis, it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They created a hybrid offspring who were called the Nephilim or the fallen ones. They're referred to as the giants or the mighty ones. And some believe they were between 8 and 15 feet tall. David Weatherly on the same special, I believe, on uh, The Unexplained. Uh, He's the author of several books about this sort of thing. David Weatherly. In 1911, giant bones were found in Lovelock Cave. Large human skulls and skeletons that measured between seven and eight feet in height, which for ancient man would have been rather significant. I mean, that's pretty noteworthy. Giant bones between seven and eight feet in height? Hugh Newman on The Unexplained talking about these same giants. This caused a sensation. And one of the strange things about the discoveries in Lovelock Cave is that the skeletons were often found with red hair. And so it does seem like they're a different kind of people than the Native Americans from that area. Until about 10 years ago, there were four very large skulls on display inside the museum. These were then removed and ceremonially buried. What's also interesting is that over 100,000 artifacts were excavated from Lovelock Cave. The strange thing is that many of the artifacts were huge, like you have giant-sized sandals, like a 15-inch long shoe, which is size 29 US, which would fit someone who's about 9 feet tall. And even pieces of clothing, which were so big, looked as though they were worn by giants. In your view, are the Nephilim are the Nephilim aliens? Are these uh, chariots of fire that are described in Ezekiel and elsewhere what we know today as UFOs or UAPs? What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We have six open lines. We're going to get to your calls in a moment. But I, I had this on my list of things to play yesterday, and let me play it now because otherwise I don't know when I'm going to have an opportunity. I, I know some of you are annoyed by what you consider to be my mispronunciations. W- one of those people that is annoyed by this is my wife. And uh, she'll say, you know, why do you say, why do you say fort instead of forte? I said, because it is, it is fort. That's the proper pronunciation. Forte applies to music. She said, but everyone says forte. Just say fort. Just say forte. I said, no, I'm going to go with what's popular. Um, or I mean, I'm going to go with what's proper, not what's popular. You're well, the odd duck. So she sends me, without comments, and she didn't need to comment, she sends me a bit, which is actually kind of funny, by comedian Brian Regan on the subject of pronunciations. And I must admit that I laughed. And for all of you that suffer along with my wife with my mispronunciations, I think uh, perhaps you will get a kick out of this as, as I did. And maybe you'll suffer a little bit less 
knowing you're not alone. There are things people do that bug me. <laughs> I don't like when somebody pronounces a word differently than everybody else to try to sound smart. Just say it like everybody else. I'm at this party. I walk up to this group of strangers. First thing I hear, uh, this guy goes, another thing about Genghis Khan. I'm like, oh, jeez. I already don't like this guy. I go, oh, uh, Genghis Khan? It was actually pronounced Genghis. Oh. I'm guessing you were there at the time. You and the Jen man palling around town. So I wanted to sound smart. So I was like, oh, Genghis Khan, the Mongolian emperor. Wasn't he the conqueror of China? So uh, I, I, she clearly was. She again, she didn't say a word when she sent me that uh, that email, uh, but she really didn't have to. It was clear what that who that was geared towards. All right, are the UFOs in the Bible the same sort of thing we're seeing today? What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. There's a reporter, uh, a uh, writer by the name of. Uh, Xavier Hayes, who lays out a lot of theories on biblical extraterrestrials. He wrote this book called Ancient Aliens in the Bible, Evidence of UFOs, Nephilim, and the True Face of Angels in Ancient Scriptures. And um, he has published a number of works on aliens, other cryptic beings, covering everywhere from ancient India to the early Americas. And what Hayes argues is that the supernatural elements of Scripture were actually alien encounters, misinterpreted by ancient authors who lacked the proper vocabulary to describe what they were seeing. You know, it's not that dissimilar from that Star Trek episode. Do you remember that Star Trek episode where they they go see Apollo? I think the name of the episode, unless I'm confusing it with another episode, I think the name of the episode was Who Mourns for Adonis? And basically the premise of the episode was the Greek gods that occupied ancient Greece and that kind of thing, they were actually aliens. And anybody that were very powerful beings that could control energy. And essentially what Hayes is saying is the same thing, but it wasn't just the poly... You know, the polytheist religions that were worshiping aliens, it's the monotheist ones as well. So he says Eden was not a terrestrial paradise, but an ancient laboratory laboratory where aliens created humans and spliced their own genes into them, thus creating an image of God. He says the Nephilim were a race of giants mentioned in Genesis. They were descendants of aliens. The flood from Noah, according to him, was a way of scrapping a genetically flawed humanity and starting over. Even according to him, Jesus was an alien, according to his reading of Scripture. So um, does the Bible evidence offer close encounters of the first kind? 
What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I'll begin with Michael in his bedroom. Hello, Michael. Yes, indeed. A um, couple of... <coughs> I was eating some ice cream. Sorry. You want me to come a back to you? Of... You need a minute? No, okay. I am fine. I'm fine. What flavor um, ice cream? Was it the uh, chocolate chip that Joe Biden is so fond of? No, actually, it's the Hagen does coffee. Uh, well, this one is sorry, triple chocolate fudge cookie with milk chocolate. Not may I use the word dark chocolate? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not going to keep you like, up at night eat, eating ice cream this late. Yeah. Is there any time when you should not be eating ice cream? Well, I mean, I would think maybe right before bed is is probably pretty troublesome. Well, the only thing that would be bad that you could say, and don't hang up on me because I have stuff about the Bible, the only bad thing that you could do is to send me on my way. Ah, that's not bad. Uh, I'll give you that, Michael. That's a good one. Okay. okay. Well, but let's talk about the Bible. Let's. Okay. Um. Unless someone has read the Bible in Hebrew and has with them a uh, book like the Sincino book, uh, in Hebrew you'd call it the Chumash, but the Sincino book, which has commentaries and translated into English, commentaries of biblical scholars who lived centuries ago with great insight. If you can go into a Hebrew bookstore and say you would like a book that has the Hebrew and the English with rabbinic uh, uh, interpretations underneath, a lot of these things uh, become more... uh, Lost in translation, sort of? Huh? Are you saying they're sort of lost in translation? Lost in translation. If you if you if you can only read the English with right. the these and thous, these commentaries, especially with the one with Isaiah, with the chariots, with the wheels, within wheels, that's difficult for anybody to interpret. But if you get one of these, what they call Hamish in a Hebrew bookstore, uh, a lot of this will will be explained. Um, and a lot of these things, um, a lot of artifacts from the Bible uh, have been found with <laughs> with relevance to, for instance, King David's kingdom with his name on a coin. And all sorts of stories in the Bible which people say, nah, it couldn't happen. Um they have biblical remains that they found. The one unfortunate thing is because the Temple Mount was taken out of our hands foolishly by uh, General Dayan. He turned it over to the uh, so, to the walk. Mike, I do have to go because we're going to do the contest, yeah, sure. and then we have um, uh, we have uh, Tanya Ryman. But uh, let me let me ask you this though: in in some understanding what you're saying about you need to read the Hebrew the Hebrew version and with an interpreter. Um, or with a, a guide, I should say. 
it sounds like you probably don't put any stock into the theory from von Doniken and others, uh, von Doniker and others, that uh, these experiences are are extraterrestrial in nature. Well, it sells books, and the reason why the reason why he attracted attention, and I remember his first talk was at Hunter back in the sixties, and people were laughing. Um, but he sold a lot of books. But here's the deal: when you say uh, nephilim, the Hebrew word is nephilim, which means fallen. Now, fallen can mean, like if you do, heaven forbid, some evil things, what do they say about you? Oh, Frank has fallen from grace. Ah, gotcha. Thank you, Michael. Anthony, very quickly, give me your thoughts on this. Very quickly. All right. Well, I don't know how quick I could do it. But anyway, that guy plays around Zachariah Sitchin, who wrote um, The Regina Soprano. And basically, um, in his book, because he can, he can, there's only like a handful of people on the planet that can read the cuneiform, the hieroglyphics, and all that stuff. So in Zechariah 15, is one of them. Um, and uh, basically, uh, what the, he came up with is uh, go Blecky Tepe, San Lu for Turkey. All right. They, uh, they started digging out there. They were building a mall, and they found, you know, um, they found humanoid skeletons that were like 14 feet, a couple hundred of them. Uh, anywhere from 10 to 14 feet tall, and they found uh, thousands of, 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 of like five foot eight, you know, uh, Homo sapien. Homo so, sapien what do you make of that? The fact that they found these giant skeletons, I find it pretty. Well, they, they, uh, I find it interesting. But what, well, what do you they, think they it did means? Some more work on it, and, they, and if you if you if you, um, if you if you look at a map, the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the um, Niger River um, all connect, but they don't connect there anymore because it's dried up. It's desert now. But back then, it wasn't desert when they wrote about when they wrote about um, uh, was the garden, the uh, garden, uh, you know, the garden. So that's that's what they, they think that's the Garden of Eden right there because or everything connects. And, and, and at that time, it would have just like Mesopotamia oh, time right around Anthony, then. It it, Anthony, we may revisit this again Monday or Tuesday of next week. Call again because I want to have... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go thank ahead. you. I appreciate this. Hey, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to try and win $1,000. If you want to try and win it, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And then we are going to speak with the lovely... And intelligent Tanya Ryman, body language expert and best-selling author. We're going to talk about the body language of Team Trump. And I'm also going to get her take on this Gwyneth Paltrow situation as well. Be the seventh caller now, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
see if we can't give away some money. This is the other side of midnight. Hey, uh, this is Jesus is Just All Right. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show or um, who the artist is, join our Facebook group. Uh, just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook, and you can join the Facebook group. It's also a forum for commenting on the show. You can also just go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O. It's a fun group. Most of the time, until John from Brooklyn gets a little crazy. Uh, All right, without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let's say to Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike, hello. How you doing, Frank? Mike, you familiar with the contest? Yeah, I played it twice before. Oh, how'd you do both times? Not too bad. What would you get up to? I had five. But okay, that's not bad. That's respectable. All right, you ready to go? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Remember, when in doubt, if you're looking for a president, it's probably James Madison. Okay, just keep that in mind. All right. Okay. All right. Ready to go? Yep. What time zone are New York and New Jersey in? Go. Sorry? Eastern. What former Eastern. what former president was indicted this week? What sweet snack is typically left out for Santa Claus? He's in milk. What what president had a first lady named Dolly Madison? All right, and try and get to a clear connection, Mike, because we're having a hard time hearing you. What 1949 science fiction book by author George Orwell describes a dystopian world in the future? Sorry? Mike, I'm not hearing you. Repeat it again. What 1949 science fiction book by author George Orwell describes a dystopian world in the future? Uh, I'm, you got me on that All one. right. Okay, Mike. I'm sorry. We were a victim of a poor phone connection, it sounds like. Uh, I'm going to put you back on hold, give Alex your information, and we'll send you a consolation prize to add to your ever-growing uh, collection of consolation prizes. Hey, um... I am always thrilled, whether it's on the air or off, to be able to talk with uh, Tanya Ryman. She is a body language expert. You might have seen her on Access Hollywood, on Fox News Channel. You might have seen her on uh, television, heard her not just in shows with me. She's written a few best-selling books, uh, the, um, the Yes Factor, The Power of Body Language. She is probably the best-known nonverbal communication specialist in the country, and we're very fortunate to have her on the program this morning. Tanya, it's great to talk to you. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Can I answer the, the last question that was missed? Be my guest. Yes, I forgot to give the answer. People hate that when I do that. 
1984 George Orwell. That's right, but I, I think you're yeah. ineligible for the money. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll buy you a drink yeah. the next time I see you. We'll call it Sounds evening. good. That sounds good. Um, all right, uh, Tanya, obviously the, the big news that everybody seems focused on um, in the last 24 hours is this uh, indictment by President Trump. Now, we have seen uh, both uh, President Trump and his attorney, Joe Tacopina, uh, making a lot of uh, media appearances. Uh, Trump was on with Hannity this this week, Joe Tacopina has been on every single TV show there is. Uh, let's start with Trump himself, either in terms of videos that he's posted or uh, the media interviews that he's done. Is there anything that we can tell about how Trump is feeling about things based on his body language? Yeah, Trump seems, you have to realize, whenever we talk about him, he has a specific baseline. So typically he comes across as arrogant. And when I say arrogant, like everybody's like, oh, no, he's one of the common men. He always uses big gestures, just like his new attorney. So you'll see that he lifts his chin up really high in superiority. His hands gesticulate back and forth huge, like, you know, all the way to the left, all the way to the right, all the way up in the air. So this is a man who always uses these gestures to show just how confident he feels. And we're seeing that, but we're also seeing a lot of things that he doesn't usually do, like a lot of pursed lips which indicate often that you're feeling insecure about yourself. Normally, somebody will purse their lips when they doubt what you're saying. But if he's speaking and pursing his lips simultaneously, that's usually indicative that he feels insecure about what he's about to say. Interesting. And um, what do you think that's an indication of? Could that just be as simple as being nervous about being indicted? Or do you think it? Oh, it could, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, when you become insecure in any situation, no matter what it is, you're going to show signals of stress. With him, he also does a lot of distancing. And what I mean by that is, like, if you notice, again, his attorney, when we talk about that, uh, you'll see the same thing. He uses what I call, or what is called, uh, like a handheld stop sign. And what that does is it does two things. It stops the person from speaking that is trying to engage so that he can speak. In other words, I'm going to take over this conversation. I'm putting a stop sign out to you. So you stop talking. But in addition to that, it also gives him space. It gives him enough space where he doesn't feel like his intimate zone is being interacted with, yet he can do it with his hand going to somebody else's intimate space. Hmm. Uh, very intimidation factor. Very yeah. interesting. Now, how about uh, someone that's certainly no stranger to the media, even under normal circumstances, but he's just been ubiquitous in the last two weeks. Uh, Joe Tacopina, he's representing Trump now. What can we learn from his body language for that you've observed so far? He's a very interesting gentleman to watch because normally when you're sitting down for an interview, you wouldn't see somebody rocking back and forth in their chair. You know, the producers would be like, stop rocking, you know, or, and making, and again, these huge gestures. What I found really interesting is that he uses his left hand and his right hand. Normally what we find is somebody will typically use their dominant hand when they're making their case for something, you know, I'm left-handed. So when I'm talking about something that I truly believe in, I'll use my left hand much more than I would use my right hand. And we can even go back and, and talk about like with President Clinton, when he was talking, he's also left-handed. When he was talking about Monica Lewinsky, he would typically use his right hand. 
And that was because on a subconscious level, he was leaking out the truth that he was lying. Oh. So by using his right hand on a regular basis, we kind of knew that he was lying about, you know, Monica Lewinsky. When he used his left hand, which is his dominant hand, he would be much more emphatic, much more believable because it was much more natural. So when we look at Capitino, what we see is he's using both hands, which for someone like me, I have to now take a look and see what else is going on. He either has way too much Botox in his forehead <laughs> or he, and I, I don't mean that fresh because I'm not sure. a medical doctor, right. so I can't make that claim, but he either does or he's an angry man. So while I was watching Aaron Melber and listening to Takapina, my son who was sitting across from me, not even seeing what I'm seeing, said, why is he so angry? And you can hear it in his voice. The rage comes across in his voice, but it's a passive aggressive type of rage. So when you're watching it, he seems like he's smiling. He wants to build rapport with Ari. You know, it seems very good. But yet at the same time, he has some disturbing gestures. Like when he reaches over again into Ari's face, which these two are very similar. He reaches over into Ari's face, almost like grab the paperwork from him. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we don't need this. He has a very slow blink rate, which I thought was interesting to watch. Like somebody normally under stress, their blink rate will increase. His does not at all. So I, I thought his body language was strong, but you also have to realize when we're looking at people, you have to take them, like take clusters into account. So at one point, Ari said, you know, your colleague went in uh, and you see Takapina squint his eyes and then he kind of racks back and forth in the chair and his lips go inward. That was one of the first times that I really saw that he was experiencing discomfort. And when somebody squints their eyes at you, it's not a seething gesture, but it definitely indicates that what they're about to say to you, you automatically know you're going to disagree. Like the smile came on, which is a, we always use smiles to cover any of the other emotion, anger, fear anxiety, what we'll do is we'll smile to cover it so nobody can read what we're actually experiencing. So my job is to see what comes immediately before the smile. And with that, it was an inward lip roll and then those that eye squint and then the smile to cover up the anger that he had just experienced. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Tanya Ryman. You could check out her website. It's tanyaryman.net, R-E-I-M-A-N.net. There's a ton of interesting stuff on there, and you can actually uh, check out her books on there, which uh, which have been bestsellers and helped a lot of people um with nonverbal communication quick question tanya on the um speaking with with both hands i think that that's something i do i tend to use both hands and i am i think you know because we've spent time you know it together in person and even off air i'm not an angry person at all what does my frequent use of of you of both hands indicate if anything when you talk, when you and I have conversations, your gestures typically stay within your body frame. You know, when you get excited, and I'm talking about you specifically, I don't see you very rambunctious, lifting your hands up high in the air, and unless you're telling a funny story. Our interactions have always been, you might use both hands, but where do those hands mm -hmm. stay? And they usually stay, you know, between your stomach, your chin, and left to right body size. That's indicative of somebody who's confident, somebody who feels strongly about what they're saying, somebody who isn't intimidated. So that's not the issue. The issue is his hands are all over the place gotcha, as gotcha. if he's speaking at, at a podium, as if he's giving a speech. So, you know, 
in addition to that, there were two times that I thought he showed really interesting body language. So normally, if you point at somebody, it's considered disrespectful. If you take your fist and, like, talk at someone, that's also considered, like, intimidating. He did this. He took his fist, and he went right into Ari's face. But what he did to make it less intimidating, which was a brilliant tactic, is he tucked his thumb into his hand. Mm. So normally thumbs are supposed to be the digit that kind of discerns how somebody is feeling. Like th thumbs are your confident speakers, right? So if you tuck that thumb in and still do the fist gesture, you're getting your point across in a strong way, yet it's much less intimidating than if the thumb is out. So you can do it yourself, like people listening, they can try to do this themselves and just see the difference in how you feel and how it comes across if you wag your, your fist at somebody uh, versus wagging your fist with your thumb tucked into your hand. The Now, in the case of Takapina, a lot of times the people that work for Trump in, in any capacity, and, and I've heard this firsthand from people that have, have worked for Trump on campaigns, governmentally, as lawyers, a lot of times they're performing for an audience of one, and they know yeah. Trump judges their TV appearances pretty harshly. And I remember one conversation that I had with, with Corey Lewandowski one time, and this was after he was Trump's campaign manager, but he, he was... Uh, he was still very much a Trump supporter, and he went on TV, and um, afterwards Trump called him after his TV appearance, and Trump says, you know, he was joking a little bit, but not really. He said, uh, you know, the the first lady and I were watching you on TV, Melania thought you did great, and uh, Corey says, oh, thank you, Mr. President, and he said, well, I didn't think you did great. I thought you were weak, and then Corey told me that he knew Trump was going to be watching his next appearance, and he went out of his way to give such an over-the-top performance in terms right. of passion and anger. Do you think some of what we're seeing from Takapina could be not necessarily a natural reflection of his emotions, but really a, a way of uh, demonstrating to Trump that he's really the kind of fighter that he's looking for? Yeah, I think it could be a little bit of both. I've seen him in other arenas, and he is kind of a force. That's That's the word I'll use. He's a tough guy, and it comes across that way. There is absolutely... There was very little intimidation by Ari. I mean, the, the few times I did see it was when he would roll back in the chair, like pull back in the chair and start like preening himself, like rubbing his tie. Those are self-soothing gestures. So when Ari was hitting spots that he was uncomfortable with, you might see him lean back in the chair and start rubbing his tie, which in essence is stroking his own chest. Again, that's just a self soothing gesture. It calms us down in times of nervousness. So that's one of the ways that you see he was intimidated a little bit. But overall, he comes across as a force to be reckoned with. And being that he went on to all these shows and was just so outlandishly strong and kind of doesn't stay within the lines. Uh, again, being on television for so long, I know if you start moving around jiggling, you, you, the producer will whisper in your ear, you need to stop doing that <laughs> or we're not going to have you back again. So there's a difference between how he came across and what his natural personality is. Mm. And I think his natural personality is just a really strong one. He might add on a little bit, a little bit of whipped cream just to make Trump smile. But overall, I think that's 
who he is. Got it. Hey, uh, uh, let me also ask you about this Gwyneth Paltrow case. I haven't followed it super closely, but I know it's gotten a lot of attention. It involves a uh, a ski accident in which the uh, person that she collided with is suing her. She's countersuing for a dollar and legal bills. Uh, both people seem to say the other person is at fault. What, if anything, can we uh, can we take from Gwyneth Paltrow's body language in this case? She's been amazing. So the reason I say amazing is because it's almost as if she took over the court. In other words, the lawyer seems to be intimidated by her, and she's sitting up there. She does have a high blink rate in certain situations, but I also watched her in other videos. So her high blink rate and her constant smiling – are usually, again, signs of insecurity. Here, it's her way of building rapport and basically saying, I don't belong here. I'm too good to be here. Uh, you know, your questions aren't scaring me. And the interesting thing is when you have somebody, of course, she is an actress, so we, we know that they can usually do well. However, I've seen Renee Zellweger screw up a million times non-verbally, so I know that actresses can be found. You know, you can see what they're doing. But when I watched her... One of the most interesting things I found was when she was asked a question, not only did she hold eye contact while she was listening, but she kept that eye contact strong while she was delivering her feedback. So typically when people are speaking, they'll look at you, right? And then they, when you ask them a question, they tend to look away, think, get their thoughts together, and they don't hold eye contact as much because it's intimidating to look at somebody's eyeballs and keep your mind on what you're trying to say. And this shows not only high confidence, but also high status for mm. somebody in this role when she's on the witness stand. Well, hey, Tanya, we're going to have to end it there. A great conversation. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back in studio and join us in person sometime soon. I would love to, and then breakfast after. That sounds good to me. Sounds good, especially <laughs> now that uh, now that Lent is ending, and I can have a Bloody Mary or two during that uh, breakfast. Oh, I love that. All right, uh, Mimosa. Mimosa. exactly. All right. <laughs> Tanya Ryman, uh, check her out. Uh, TanyaRyman.net. There is nobody better. Check out her books: The Power of Body Language, The Yes Factor, and The Body Language of Dating. Nobody better when it comes to nonverbal communication. Fifteen seconds of fame in just a moment. You want to be heard? You can dial 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Russ. Hey, I wonder how many NDAs Mike Bloomberg signed with professional women whose careers he derailed while he ran for president in 2016. I hope Alvin Bragg is a first DA incarcerated in his own jail. When you when you corrupt justice, you get just desserts. Ask Leo. Raji. Although inflation has been 7 to 10 percent, the Goya 15.5 ounce can garbanzo we used to buy by the dozen is priced 40 percent higher at our Christie store. Thank you, Margo. David. Regarding these alleged remains of giants from biblical times, Perhaps somebody stumbled into a burial ground for retired Neanderthal basketball players. Mike. Morning, Frank. The countdown begins. 34 days without booze and 40 as your goal. Speaking on behalf of your vital organs, we appreciate the reduction in our workload. Cheech. They removed the Ten Commandments and Pledge of Allegiance from our schools. 
They made girls join the Boy Scouts. Now our children don't know if they are boys or girls. Wake up, America, and destroy Antifa. Joe. Your, your boss, John Casamitini, he has to practice what he preaches. By having Governor Cuomo on, that's a joke. He has to go back and learn what he says. Uh, Roger. You know, about 40 years ago, there was this Jewish mechanic out in the uh, Queens Village. His name was Al. He used to jokingly refer to the idea of Jewish mafia as kosher nostra. And finally, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Last Friday from the question, there was just one correct woman to get married from the history, and that was not Greta Garbo because she was lesbian and became gender fluid, but she swore not to get married ever. Thank you, Leo. Have a great weekend, everybody. Frank Morano, good day.